Hi, this is MG Gong, and I play Ja Kenman on the HBO series Oz, and you're listening to the Inside Oz podcast. Sister, you do not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all encompassing. Being accused of three bits, disloyal. Dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. She's a girl, so you'd be butt ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Right. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson. Glad to have you all back for this episode. I know that it's been a while, but it is great to be back again. The reason for the long layoff is pretty simple. I do Inside Oz in my spare time from my actual job. I don't do the podcast for a living, so I don't necessarily get the time that I would want to to work on the show. I just get to do it whenever I can during my spare time. But we're back and we're ready to rock and roll, but there are a few things that I need to mention before we get into today's episode. First of all, I would like to say a thank you to Michael Gong for providing the introduction to this episode. We sorted that a few months back, and there was a bit of confusion about it landing in my inbox after Michael recorded it, but a quick look in the junk mail folder later, and there it was. Michael is very approachable on social media, and willing to answer any questions that you might have about his time on Oz, or any other projects that he might be working on. He's currently working on his film Onion Head. So if you have anything to ask him, you can follow and message him on Instagram by following his handle, at Foo Entertainment. That's Foo as in Kung Fu, followed by the word entertainment. Since the release of the last episode, we also suffered the unfortunate passing of Mark Margolis, who we of course knew as Antonio Napa during series 2 and 3, who passed away on August 3rd at the age of 83 following a short illness. On behalf of the entire Oz fanbase, I just want to take this opportunity to express our condolences to Mr. Margolis' family, and ask that you all please respect their privacy at this obviously difficult time. As some of you may have seen on the podcast social media accounts, I managed to catch Evan Seinfeld on a couple of the Biohazard reunion shows that they played here in the UK during August. First off seeing them play at the Bloodstock Festival, followed a few days later at their show in Manchester at the Club Academy. While I didn't get to meet Evan personally, although I did try at the Manchester show using the tried and tested hang around near the tour bus technique, I was front row at Bloodstock for their set that closed out the Sophie Lancaster stage on the Sunday night. You can actually see my big silly face on their picture with the crowd that they took at the end of the show. Evan also came down front to shake hands with fans, and as he passed me by, I'm almost certain that he would have known that I was there as I Oz fanboyed out a little. One final thing that I need to mention as well is that I received a couple of messages on social media asking why in the last episode, why did I refer to it as the Blizzard of Oz 01 and not by its actual title of just Blizzard of Oz? Basically, that is because, for the last 22 years, 
I have apparently misread that episode's title every single time that I've seen it. When I was putting the episode together, at some point I went to look at the Series 4 DVD box for some reason. I can't even remember what it was that I was looking for now. And I looked at the episode's title, and there it was, looking back at me. Blizzard of 01. And I'm thinking to myself, where the fuck has the R's gone? And I got onto IMDB and wherever else I can find a list of the show's episode titles to see if this was just me being an idiot, and apparently it was. Nowhere to be found is Blizzard of Oz 01 other than in my own head. By that point, I've already recorded the show and edited most of it with the incorrect title still in there, and I did think to myself, shall I go back and edit it out, but sometimes when you do that it's really noticeable that you've made an edit that you can't quite cover up, so I figured it better to just leave it in. I will say that Blizzard of Oz works as a play on words, and obviously the year is there for the obvious reason. But yeah, this is just me apparently unable to read. Needless to say, I will never make that mistake again. With all of that out of the way, it's time to get on with today's episode, as we look back at Series 4, Episode 14, Orpheus Descending. Holding an 8.2 on IMDb, the same rating as the previous episode, the episode was written by Tom Fontana, and directed by Gloria Muzio, who prior to this had only one directing credit to her name, directing one episode of the TV show Son of the Beach, where she also earned four credits as a consulting producer. The episode originally aired on February 11th, 2001, a day on which a Dutch computer programmer launched the Anaconda Cova virus, infecting millions of computers and emails worldwide via a photoshopped image of the Russian tennis star. In other news since the broadcast of the previous episode, our favourite ex-NFL star was in trouble once again, as Orenthal James Simpson was arrested in Miami-Dade County on charges of simple battery and burglary of an occupied conveyance, following an altercation with a fellow motorist that occurred in November of 2000. Due to OJ's previous, let's just call them legal troubles, were he to be convicted, OJ could have been looking at up to 16 years in prison. Luckily for Mr. Simpson, he was quickly acquitted of both charges when it went before the court several months later. Back in the old Greek times, there lived a man named Orpheus, loved his wife, took it easy on the ouzo, played a mean guitar, upstanding guy. So what the almighty gods do? They fucked with him, made his life Hades. Why? Because that's what those in power do to those of us with none. Kick off with Act 1, with Augustus regaling us with a brief explanation as to who Orpheus was, and that he loved his wife, but would take it easy on the Uso, which apparently didn't stop him from playing a mean guitar, finishing off by saying that Orpheus was an upstanding guy. As we touched upon in the last episode, the gods for one reason or another didn't take kindly to this, so they decided to fuck with him, Augustus saying that they made his life Hades, a nice play on words there. Over time, Hades has come to refer to Hell in general, but in Greek mythology, he is actually the god of the dead and the king of the underworld, so you see why his name has become synonymous with the lower of the religious realms. Asking why the gods did such a thing, Augustus reasons that it's what those with power do to those who have none, as we cut to the dark corridor where we see the feet of a mysterious figure arriving to start the day. The buzzer sounds to allow them entry to M-City, as the camera slowly begins to reveal more and more of them as they make their way into the unit. As we hear Berth from the previous episode proclaiming that the time has arrived, we see that this is none other than McManus making their return to M-City, having been absent from the previous episode following the stabbing by Omar two episodes ago. 
I couldn't find anything that specifically pointed as to why Terry Kinney was granted this short time away from the show, but it's possible that he may have been unavailable for that part of the filming due to an outside project, most likely linked to his work with the Steppenwolf Theatre Company, or possibly even a feature film. We see more flashbacks of Burr revealing his plan, as well as Chucky and Morales saying that they want Burr dead, as McManus nods up towards his good friend Murphy before taking a look around M-City, which is still in lockdown following the events of the previous episode. We're reminded of Jaya wanting to kill Morales, as well as seeing the sort break up things on the basketball court, as McManus calls for the pods of Morales and Burr to be open so that they can have a crisis meeting, which is to take place slap-bang in the middle of M-City. McManus making sure that everyone sees that it's happening. Revealing that he was in the hospital for 10 days, McManus says that he'd like to think that this, as he calls it, little brouhaha began in that time, but he also has an inkling that it may have been brewing for much longer. Regardless of how long this has been simmering, he acknowledges that they narrowly missed a major war which would have yielded significant carnage. The big question though is what happens now? and he says that he's going to give them a couple of options, which then turns into three, because McManus either can't count, or he just loves his rule of threes. The options on the table, then. Option one, both men go to the M-City cage and battle each other Thunderdome-style, with two men entering and one man leaving, having won a place on death row. Option two is for both men to be transferred to different units, where they could still kill each other, but at least they won't be McManus' problem anymore. Or option three is to come to some kind of truce as he opens up the floor for both men to say their piece. Morales takes a look around and up to Chucky's pod. Interesting how McManus hasn't included him in this meeting, perhaps not seeing Chucky, and by extension the Italian group, as a legitimate threat. But Chucky definitely seems concerned that he may be losing his bit of power here, as Bert also takes a look around towards Poet, who seems to be having similar feelings as what Chucky does. Morales offers peace as Bert calls it a beautiful thing, McManus telling them to shake hands so that everybody can see this newfound harmony between the warring factions. Some inmates look indifferent to the whole thing, Edward in particular doesn't seem too fussed, as others shake their heads before Murphy opens up the rest of the pods to begin the day. I thought this was a really strong opening to the episode, one of the strongest that we've had for quite a while. The camera work on McManus returning gave a few moments of intrigue with the slow reveal, even if it was blindingly obvious that it was always going to be him, and especially after Gloria even said in the last episode that he would be back next week, and him not wasting any time in nipping all this tension in the bud straight away gives a feeling that maybe lessons have been learned after what occurred the previous year with the racial tension. The fact that this has been allowed to fester for as long as it has, however, shows that very little has in fact changed. M-City is still a battleground, with different groups looking to establish their dominance. But for the time being, the crisis has been averted, and there has been a handshake take place, which as we all know is a sacred trust that can never be broken. Of course, that is all total nonsense. We all know that this handshake doesn't mean a thing, and both men are going to go straight back to their pods and begin planning their next move. Illustrating an incredible amount of naivety in McManus' part to think that this was in any way over. But as I said, a strong opening that nicely bridged the gap between what occurred in McManus' absence, and the next chapter set to begin now that he has returned. So everyone is let out of their pods and Augustus heads straight over to Burr to try and explain his previous actions. But Burr isn't interested in hearing what Augustus has to say, because he knows that it was Augustus that tipped off the hacks. Burr confirms Augustus' fears of feeling as though he has betrayed him, even playing the I raised you as one of my own card 
and that if Augustus was anybody else, he'd already be dead. But instead, he's going to let Augustus live so that he can live with the shame of what he's done. Bert is really laying it on thick with this betrayal shtick. Bert leaves saying that he and Augustus are through, which is the end of their part for this episode as we move over to Chico and Morales making their way through MC, as Chico bumps into Jaya, telling him to watch his step. Jaya tells Chico not to mess with him, as he then turns his attention to Morales, saying that just because he and Bear have made nice-nice, that doesn't mean that he's given up on wanting to whack Morales. Taking exception to his boss being insulted, Chico again tells Jaya to step back, even going to grab Jaya around his shirt collar, but Jaya hits a textbook judo throw, sending Chico to the ground. Morales, channeling his inner pro wrestler by grabbing a chair for an attack, is moved back by the COs as Murphy grabs Jaya, saying that he's only been up 10 minutes and he's already causing trouble, and that he's off to the cage for this indiscretion. Murphy doesn't actually have to fight that hard to get Jaya to go. He seems to go quite willingly, which I actually quite liked as it shows that Jaya isn't concerned with the consequences of his actions. He'll take whatever the punishment is so long as he gets his licks in beforehand. The speed of the throw and the fact that it takes Chico out more or less straight away, he isn't trying to inflict more damage on him. He's already achieved his goal, so there's no point in getting into a further fight with Murphy, something which could lead to a harsher punishment later on, so he just accepts his punishment and heads straight off to the cage. Great stuff there. I mentioned when I introduced him a couple of episodes back that Michael Gong is an accomplished martial artist, and fair play to both he and Otto Sanchez here. They are doing this stunt themselves, and Michael proper <laughs> throws Otto over his shoulder into the ground, but I'm sure that he did it as safely as possible. The angle of the shot and the cut is too quick to see if there was a crash mat or anything like that, but I'm sure that this went without a hitch, although Chico's groans of agony are quite enjoyable to hear. I said step back. We see a brief flashback of the altercation between Supreme and Omar over in the hospital, as we then cut to the gym where Morales is spotting Chucky on a weight bench as Supreme makes his way over. Supreme, for some reason, is wearing his Unit B attire here, as indicated by the 00K251 on the front pocket, so this is definitely his. But this really confused me, as MC inmates tend to be in their own clothing rather than living under the uniformity of Unit B. So why is he wearing this here? Has he been transferred without us knowing? A hangover from his time in solitary, perhaps? Or does every inmate actually have their own numbered shirt, and we just don't tend to see them wearing it all that often? Either way, Chucky seems surprised to see Supreme standing there, saying that he heard that Supreme was dead. Supreme calling that funny as he'd heard the same thing about Chucky, and that maybe you can't believe rumours. Speaking of rumours, Supreme mentions that he's heard about Chucky and Morales signing a treaty with Burr. Morales asking what Supreme would have done instead and he lets it go that it was only in fact he that was involved in the discussion with Bear rather than calling out Chucky's lack of involvement. Supreme dodges the question, and says that he's going to send Bear down. Chucky says that they've been trying to kill Bear ever since he arrived with no success, as Morales makes the point that should Bear die now, then that will make them the prime suspects. See, this is probably why McManus views Morales as the more intellectual and thereby more dangerous out of him and Chucky, but Supreme has an ace up his sleeve that no one will suspect them if Burr were to die at the hands of one of his own. Who does Supreme have in mind, Morales asks, as Supreme points to the basketball court where Augustus is just leaving. 
Over in the cafeteria, Augustus is sat at the end of one of the benches as Supreme approaches. Of course, the reason why Augustus is sat at the end of the bench is obvious, but that got me to thinking of other times that we've seen him sat at the benches among the other inmates. It doesn't happen often, but I'm certain it's happened before. Supreme inquires as to why Augustus isn't eating with Burr, but Augustus is not in the mood for Supreme's questions, telling him to take a walk, and even calling him ketchup, a joke which Supreme has probably had to endure his entire life. Supreme mentions about how Omar tried to kill him, same as Tug did, but he's still on his hind legs, and now that Augustus is at odds with Burr, Augustus probably needs a friend. Augustus makes it clear that he doesn't want anything to do with Supreme or his friendship, but Supreme says that he wants to make things right between them, admitting to putting Augustus in his chair and, if you pardon the expression, inside Oz, and that from now on he's got Augustus back, cementing their new partnership by taking a seat as Burr looks on from a distance. Cut to M-City, where Murphy introduces Burr to his new podmate, Edward, who Murphy refers to as the Colonel. We've seen before that Murphy just goes along with whatever people want to be referred to, as it's not worth the argument. If you want to be called a particular thing, yeah, fucking fine, whatever. Burr says that he doesn't want a cellmate, but the empathetic Murphy tells him, and yes, I'm gonna do an accent here again, Ah, jeez, your reservation for the single suite must have got screwed up, before leaving with a great for fuck's sake expression. Murphy is always great when he gets to bring the sarcasm. Burr questions what McManus must be thinking, putting the two of them together in a pod together, Edward admitting that he isn't sure himself. Burr then asks why did Murphy refer to him as Colonel, as the two of them then bond over their military past, Edward having been in the Marines, while Burr served in the Army, the 4th Armoured Cavalry 1st Infantry Division no less, and also mentions Vietnam, as Edward mentions that he also served in Vietnam as part of the 3rd Battalion 4th Marines. I'm not even going to pretend that I understand what those divisions of their respective armed forces do, but as I discussed when introducing both actors upon their arrival, both men are Vietnam veterans of the Army and Marines respectively, so I would imagine that those are the actual divisions in which both men served. Having taken all of this on board, Burr reckons that perhaps there is a logic to McManus' thinking, and offers Edward a handshake, which Edward firmly accepts if Burr tells him to make himself at home. As Edward begins to settle in, Burr says that he might have a little search and destroy mission for him, looking out of his pod towards Morales, Edward taking it all in his stride and seemingly not questioning it, as the scene closes. So obviously Edward has been transferred to a different pod following his fight with Beecher last episode, which begs the question, where the hell is Beecher? He was sent to the cage when he had the fight, but Jaya got sent to the cage at the start of the episode, so where the hell is he? Down in the hole, perhaps? But then, what was the point in sending him to the cage? Beecher just seems to have disappeared. Over in the hospital, Gloria is with Pete and McManus, saying that from a physical standpoint, Omar is fully recovered, and the plan is to send him back to solitary later that day. McManus asks Pete about having evaluated Omar, with Pete saying that he is volatile, but that is largely fueled by his drug intake. McManus reckoning that if they can keep Omar clean, then maybe he'll be salvageable. Gloria gets partway through asking what I imagine was, Tim, what in the blue fuck are you thinking? As McManus says that he's bringing Omar back to MC. Gloria, not quite in these words, but the sentiment is definitely there, says, 
Tim, you fucking idiot. He stabbed you. McManus thinking that is all the more reason for him to be the one to make the effort as he heads onto the ward to meet with Omar. Hello, Omar. Looking at him. I'm sorry for shanking you. I just don't know what comes over me. I forgive you. You do? How'd you like to come back to M City? Instead of solitary? You don't have to ask me twice, you know. Well, I can make that happen. But we gotta go over some ground rules. Bridges mended, we cut to the kitchen where Poet is asking Omar how he managed to get out of solitary and end up back in M City. Omar telling him that McManus simply forgave him. Tug, saying what we're all thinking, says that McManus is on crack. Omar laughing as he asks who is he telling. I touched on it at the start and we see it here again. How naive is McManus? I understand the reasoning for it. He doesn't want to admit that Omar is a lost cause because that ultimately portrays MC. McManus' visions have revolutionised the prison industry and what he hopes to be his lasting legacy to be nothing more than a failed experiment. But as Gloria alludes to here, Omar tried to murder McManus, purely to try and enhance his own standing amongst the other inmates. Had Omar not stabbed McManus, had he stabbed one of the COs, let's say, would McManus be as forgiving towards Omar as he is here? I highly doubt it. He'd have been sent back into solitary and likely never seen again. I would say heard from again too, but there's no way you're not hearing Omar even when locked up in solitary never shuts the fuck up. We get an Augustus vignette in which he tells the story of Orpheus' wife Eurydice being bitten by a snake, causing her death. Understandably, Orpheus freaks the fuck out at his wife's untimely death and heads down into the underworld to demand that she be returned to him, singing and playing a mournful song as he does. So taken with his song and his obvious love for his wife, a goddess, most likely Persephone, queen of the underworld and wife to Hades, who was also her uncle, but that's a whole other story, tells Orpheus, okay, you can have your wife back. However, if you look at her before you get back to Earth, she'll disappear. Accepting the challenge, Orpheus begins his journey back to Earth with Eurydice following close behind. Suspecting foul play from the gods, Orpheus questioned whether or not Eurydice was there. And as Orpheus crosses the threshold between Hades and the daylight, he turns back to see her face. As Eurydice was still in Hades when Orpheus turned to look upon her, the stipulation had not been adhered to, and Eurydice vanished back into the underworld. Augustus concludes that Orpheus should have known better, and that you don't fuck with the gods. Now, let's play a hypothetical game here. Say that you're Orpheus, and your loved one had died, and you went down to the underworld to retrieve them, and you're presented with that exact same scenario. You can have them back so long as you don't look back, otherwise they're ours. If you get that niggling thought that you're being fucked with in your head, can you honestly say that you wouldn't look back just to check that everything was on the up and up? Or do you persevere, keeping your end of the bargain just hoping that they'll be there at the end? and that you weren't the victim of a cruel trick. If that was me in that situation, and I was trying to bring my wife back, I honestly don't know if I wouldn't turn back. Look at it this way. My wife in this situation is already dead. She's gone. She ceased to be. Now, if I'm heading back to Earth, and I've got it in my head that the gods are fucking with me, and that she isn't actually there, 
and I end up convincing myself that she isn't actually there, then what do I have to lose if I turn back? Other than my wife, obviously. If I make it back to Earth only to find that she wasn't there to begin with and the gods were tricking me all along, then I'll never see her again anyway. If she is there, then by looking back, I'll have at least seen her face one last time. But in doing so, I've banished her to the underworld forever. A choice that I would have to live with. And that's the moral of the story. Staying true to your word. Once you talk it out though, I think it's difficult to say what you would actually do in that same situation. So we rejoin things over in Unit J, where Claire is on the phone to her friend Shell, chatting about some day that she's been on recently saying, oh, you know how men are, as Clayton is methodically hitting away at the speed bag while Alvin and Johnny play cards for what is likely the billionth time this year. Clayton is staring a hole right through Alvin, who asks Clayton if he wants something as Clayton asks what kind of a name is Yude. Alvin brushes off the question as Johnny tries to get the card game going again, but Clayton wants to know what nationality the name originates from, calling Alvin a dumbass in the process. Alvin tells him that it's an American name, Clayton firing back that there are no American names, again calling Alvin a dumbass, which is clearly getting on Alvin's nerves. Clayton reasons that it can't be an American name as there are no Americans, as Alvin indicates that here we go again, so seemingly we've had this conversation before. Clayton says that we're, referring to the US population, all from someplace else originally, which despite his ranty nature as of late, he is actually right about. In terms of the Yude name, according to Ancestry.com, the name was not only in the US, but in the UK and Canada in censuses taken between 1891 and 1920, although the 1920 census only indicated two Yude families living in the US, one in Massachusetts and the other in New Jersey. So there is a possibility that the character of Alvin was given this name based on these records. While Tom Lejean himself is from Louisiana, Alvin's origins are a little more ambiguous. It's often implied that he comes from a small town, but it's never stated exactly whereabouts that town is. Once you get out of the larger towns and cities in the state, such as Newark or Trenton or Allentown, there are a number of townships between them, so it could be that Alvin was stationed in one of those. Alvin once again tells Clayton that his name is American, which prompts Clayton to once again call him a dumbass. Having had enough of his new name, Alvin throws his cards down and rises from his chair looking to shut Clayton up, as Johnny calls for Claire to do her job. She asks if Clayton is starting shit again, Clayton saying that he's just making conversation, as Claire tells him to shut his trap and goes back to her office. Looking at this office, don't you think it's a bit odd that that door opens outwards, meaning that Claire's office is essentially the inside of a cupboard? We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Tensions having subsided, Clayton asks if Johnny is taking Alvin's side over his. Johnny asking why shouldn't he? Clearly he's had enough of Clayton's rantings as well. Clayton, being of sound body and mind and not one to fly off the handle at any minor verbal abuse thrown his way, says that it's to do with what Alvin is and what they are, clearly attempting to turn the whole thing into a black versus white scenario. Something which Oz is only just starting to get back to normal over after recent events. Not taking the bait, Johnny calls Clayton a fuckwad. Rather than lash out for once, Clayton gives Johnny a creepy looking smile and walks away, 
as we cut to the visiting room where after having not visited him or even having seen Johnny since his trial, his wife Abby is waiting for him to arrive. So Abby here is played by Rosalind Coleman Williams, although she is credited here under her maiden name as she would marry her husband Craig T. Williams towards the end of 2001. Born July 20th, 1965 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Rosalind found it difficult to get cast in plays in her community, working instead as an usher and stage manager in order to break into the industry. Making a TV acting debut in 1995, appearing in the TV movie The Piano Lesson, Rosalind appeared in a minor role in NYPD Blue the following year, while in 1998 she would make her film acting debut in Mixing Near. In 1999, Rosalind appeared in the film Personals, which also featured an appearance from Oz alumni Angela Bullock, as well as Cold Feet, Music of the Heart, and The Opportunists. While in 2000, she appeared as Dawn Clifton in the film Our Song, as well as the short films Hung Over and Out in the Window, before appearing here on Oz. So Johnny and Abby share a huge hug, as they haven't seen each other in so long. Johnny mentioned previously that he hadn't seen Abby since his trial, but we're months on from that now, and she didn't come to visit while he was undercover as Desmond Mobe for obvious reasons, so you're looking at between 18 months and two years since these two have actually seen each other, which makes the moment of their joy to see each other all the more sweeter. Often when somebody is sent to prison, it is understandable that their spouse may completely wash their hands of that person, but straight away we get a sense of Abby's loyalty to her husband, despite everything that has occurred. She tells Johnny that she's missed him so much, but hadn't realised that until right now, as Johnny tells her not to cry, and the two of them take a seat. Seemingly forgetting that her husband is in Oz on a murder charge, Abby tells Johnny that she needs him to come home. Johnny telling her that you know that I can't, not for another three years at least, but Abby says that she won't make it that long. Johnny, however, disagrees, showing confidence in his wife and that she needs to do it for their son's sake as well as his, and that her waiting for his release is the only thing that keeps him whole, and that someday the two of them and their son Robbie will be together again, and that they're going to laugh and forget about this whole thing. Now, if there's one thing that we've learned through watching the show, it's that sometimes people should maybe finish certain thoughts a sentence earlier than they often do because I'm sure we can see where this is heading now that Johnny has uttered those words, and that this isn't going to have a happy ending now, but had he just stopped talking a sentence or two earlier, then maybe things would turn out different. Johnny tells Abby that he wants Abby to bring Robbie with her when she visits next week, saying that he's finally ready to face his boy as the two of them share another embrace. Back in Unit J, Claire is on the phone again. She did mention that she'd call Shell back earlier on, but this time she has the door closed as we see Johnny working out on the multi-gym machine, which I had to go back and check was actually there in the previous scene, as I didn't think it was. But no, it is definitely there, it hasn't mysteriously appeared. I don't think they've had it there all the time though, I'd have to go back through all the Unit J scenes of the previous episodes to be certain. As Johnny works out, Clayton passes through and past Alvin's cell, where we see Alvin taking a little nap. Over by Claire's cupboard office, Clayton squats down by the bookcase and moves a doorstop into position, locking Claire inside. He heads back over towards Johnny, asking him if he thinks that Robbie will be okay growing up without a father. Johnny doesn't understand what Clayton means, but Clayton grabs Johnny's arm on the weight machine as he also grabs a shank from his right pocket, plunging it into Johnny's midsection. As Johnny spits up blood, Clayton asks him, Now who's the fuckwad? as he then stabs Johnny in the back of the neck. 
Alvin stumbles out of his cell, presumably having heard the commotion, and drags Clayton off of Johnny and presses him against the wall, calling Clayton a crazy son of a bitch. Hearing all of this going on, Claire shouts what the hell's going on from her cupboard office window, but she's trapped inside due to the doorstop as Clayton gets in a knee to the groin as well as a headbutt on Alvin. We don't see the aftermath of this as we suddenly cut to solitary where Clayton is being led in in handcuffs, as Leo stands there with his hands on his hips looking like a disappointed parent. As Clayton is uncuffed ahead of being placed in his cell, he laughs like a sinister motherfucker as we get one more shot of a disappointed Leo. This scene with Johnny's death worked really well in one respect, as it all happens so suddenly, which in storyline terms works great as we essentially live it out through Johnny's perspective. One second he's working out and everything's fine, the next he's got a shank in his stomach and he's dead on the floor. On the other hand, there's no surprise in it at all, as we've come to expect something horrific to happen any time things are either looking up for someone, or they say something along the lines of everything's going to be just fine. I'd actually forgotten that Johnny's death occurred in this episode. I remembered that he dies, and how it happens, and that it happened before the end of the series, and that Clayton goes to solitary as a result, but for some reason I'd thought that all of this occurred in the next episode, rather than in this one. Over in the hospital we see Alvin, sporting a cut on his forehead being checked over by Gloria, as Leo arrives to see Johnny being zipped up in a body bag and about to head to the morgue. Just as Johnny is zipped up, Leo turns to see Abby make her way through the gate as Leo gives another one of his now trademark sighs to close the scene. I've mentioned previously about Lance Reddick's incredible facial expressions, particularly in that scene with Augustus where he let his Jamaican accent slip nearly blowing his cover. And we got another great example of that here when Johnny is stabbed by Clayton. All of Johnny's pain is portrayed through Lance's eyes. They could have just as easily gone with Lance letting out an agonising scream, but his eyes are practically bulging out of his head. It's the eyes that are telling the story. Incredible stuff from Lance there. This whole section is also dripping with chaos and sadness as well. Chaos in that it all happens so quickly and from Johnny's viewpoint completely out of nowhere, but also for the fact that this clearly happens on the same day that Appy has just visited with her husband, and the fact that she has come for this visit, which appears to have been a fairly positive one, and then arrives back wearing the same clothing that she was in the last scene. She hasn't even had time to get home, she's turned back part way. And all of that happiness of seeing Johnny again and the hope that one day being able to put all of this behind them, that's been taken away from not only her, but from her and Johnny's son too, which is a whole other layer of sadness in and of itself. Robbie hasn't even been given the chance to see his father again, let alone say goodbye to him. This whole segment is just absolutely miserable. Over in his office, Leo is consoling himself with a bottle of alcohol. We've seen him hit the whiskey before, and the camera movement here actually shows that the bottle is more than half empty, or less than half full if you like. Another really nice bit of direction there. Floria enters telling Leo that she's heading home for the day, and as he gets up saying that he'll walk her out, he clearly isn't in any state to do so, as he knocks his glass from the table, shattering it on the floor. That glass must have been as thin as anything, because that is not a long drop for it to smash like that and it's landing on what looks like carpet. You'd think Leo would be able to afford some decent glassware on his salary. Floria says that she'll clean it up, worried that it'll leave a stain, but Leo forcefully tells her to leave it alone, 
saying that he wants the broken glass to be there when he arrives the following morning to remind him how drunk he's gotten. Leo grabs his coat, but Floria is not letting him drive in his condition. Leo saying what's the worst that could happen, and that maybe he'll wrap himself around a tree. Floria offers to call Leo a cab, but Leo refuses that, as Floria then says that she'll drive him herself. She's great here, there's no way she's letting Leo behind the wheel. Good on you, Floria. Leo tells her that he and Johnny had a lot in common, saying that they had good intentions that turned to shit, and that Johnny warned him about Clayton, only for him to do nothing because there was nothing he could do. Floria takes Leo under the arm and prepares to take him home, as they head out of the office with Leo letting out some kind of drunken moan to close out Act 1. Another really good scene this one, as we actually get to see how certain incidents affect Leo compared to others, and how he reacts differently when those incidents involve someone he's close to. I mentioned a moment ago about the camera moving to show a mostly drunken bottle of booze, but towards the end of the scene we get a shot of Leo with a photo behind him showing a tower. It's tough to tell exactly what tower it's a picture of, it could just be an old picture of what is meant to be Oz itself, but it could also illustrate Leo as being the man in the high tower, and perhaps that there is a disconnect between him and everybody else at the prison. We've also seen this on occasion with McManus and his office in M-City being higher ground. Not only is there a possible visual disconnect between Leo and everyone, but his drunken state could also be indicative of a mental disconnect as well especially as he doesn't seem concerned about what might happen to him on the drive home. While the most obvious potential outcome would be his death as well as those of others, needless to say, don't drink and drive folks, but according to the New York DMV, should Leo be hit with a DWI, he would be looking at a mandatory fine of between $500 and $1,000, as well as a maximum jail term of up to one year, as well as having his license revoked for at least six months, assuming that this was his first offence. I'm headed home. I'll walk out with you. Oh, I'll get that. Leave it. Well, the stain might mess with the- Leave it alone. I want the broken glass to be there in the morning to remind me of how drunk I am. You can't drive in this condition. What's the worst that can happen? Wrap myself around a tree? Look, I'll call you a cab. No. And I'll drive you myself. <laughs> John Basil and I had a lot in common. Good intentions that turn to shit. He warned me about Clayton. I did nothing. Because there was nothing I could do. Come on. Let me take you home. Two gets underway with another man in a high tower, only this one looks like he's more in the Tower of London, as we see Beecher looking out of the window in Sister Pete's office at the falling snow. Pete arrives saying she loves snow just before Christmas, and that she can tolerate it in January, but once it gets to February, she's had enough of it, and that by then snow is redundant. I mentioned last episode about January usually being a particularly cold month for New Yorkers, but when I was re-watching this, the way that Pete talks about the snow here initially sounded like she was giving out about the snow having stuck around until February, whereas last episode we were around November time as Ray was giving Saeed the cafeteria schedule so that they could plan around Ramadan, 
So I originally thought that we'd had a huge time jump here of nearly four months. But having listened to it again, this could be the first falling snow, and Pete is just talking about being happy to see it and that we're actually closer to Christmas time. She sarcastically says good morning to Beecher, who eventually breaks out of this trance he seems to be in looking outside at the snow, apologising to Pete and saying that he misses Keller when she asks him what's up. He talks about how they can't call each other and that Keller hasn't responded to any of his letters. He figures that maybe one of the Nazis in the mailroom could have destroyed them, or on the other hand, maybe Keller hasn't responded at all, perhaps because he's found someone else up at Cedar Junction, or that he could even be dead. Pete says that she'll contact the head of psychiatry at Cedar Junction and find out how Keller is getting on, seeming more confident that Keller is alive than Beecher is, and that she'll try and arrange a phone call between the two of them. I liked how she said she'd try to arrange. She doesn't make any promises, as Beecher thanks her and that since Keller has been gone, he's felt different, but he struggles to say how exactly. He says that he hasn't felt dead, nor has he felt empty, as Pete tells him that he actually has a lot to be happy about, saying that Holly is finally beginning to respond normally following the kidnapping, as well as how Catherine is setting up his parole hearing, but Beecher says that's all part of the weirdness, and asks Pete if he gets out, who will he be? And that's an interesting question from Beecher, and one that we can ask of the show and of the prison system as a whole. The whole point of M-City is that it's an experimental unit focused on rehabilitation, with the aim of releasing those that are able to be released back into society as reformed people. Of course, there are some in M-City who are serving life sentences without the possibility of parole, and therefore the focus on rehabilitation shifts to just making them better people for what remains of their lives. We've been on this emotional journey with Beecher for between four and five years now, and we can see that he is definitely a different person than he was when he arrived. But the bigger question is whether or not he's a better person. And quite frankly, I'd say that it's hard to argue that he isn't. Since coming to Oz, Beecher is directly responsible for the death of C.O. Carl Metzger, arranging the killing of Hank Schillinger, and also playing a part in the death of Andrew Schillinger through manipulation tactics. Not to mention being involved, albeit very loosely, in the killing of Nate Shemin, Mondo Brown, and Ronald Barlog. Of course, there were other factors involved in those later three deaths, so like I say, the connection is very loose, but there is still a connection there. So you've got a total of six deaths in which Beecher is either directly or indirectly involved with. At this point, it looks like his involvement with those killings will remain a secret, but if he's released, then Beecher has to live with those as he adjusts back to being in society. That's a hell of a way to come out of prison carrying when the whole purpose was meant to be that he went to prison to be rehabilitated. And you can apply that to any number of other people who leave prison. What experience are they actually leaving with once their incarceration is up? Cuts Catherine meeting with Beecher about how she's met with Steve Dawkins and that she's optimistic about the outcome of the hearing. Although she does say that she's guardedly optimistic. So much like Pete, she isn't making Beecher any promises. Beecher looks surprised that there may actually be a chance that the parole board will actually look favourably on him. Something which we touched upon last episode was that Beecher appeared to have convinced himself that with everything that's happened over the course of his incarceration, there was no way that he would ever be granted parole, and that he was likely going to have to serve more of his 15-year sentence. Obviously, he's very happy with the news, saying that he can't thank Catherine enough, Catherine telling him not to thank her until he's on the other side of the wall. That proves an exciting prospect for Beecher, saying that he's going to thank Catherine by taking her to dinner, promising to take her to the nicest restaurant in the city, 
and that they'll even drink Dom Perignon. Catherine says she'd like that as we get a great shot of Menia, who's overseeing this meeting, shooting a look their way, almost like he's saying, settle down guys, as there's this awkward moment of silence between the two of them, which Peter eventually breaks by asking if Catherine is married. He realises almost immediately, holy shit, what am I doing asking that? You're my lawyer for Christ's sake. But Catherine says it's okay. After all, she knows every detail of his personal life, so why shouldn't he know something about hers? I mean, probably because it's none of Beach's business, but anyway, turns out that Catherine is divorced, and she also has an eight-year-old son. Beecher tells her, that's the same age as Holly, which Catherine already knows, looking at the file with all of Beecher's personal details in it. And the two of them nervously laugh, and it's some very sickly and a little cringy. The bell sounds to bring the meeting to a close, as is usual for anything that happens in Oz, we only tend to get the tail end of these things, which Beecher even comments on, saying that you never get to finish a conversation. Catherine tells him not to worry as they're far from finished, so it looks like this date is on and reinforces Catherine's thoughts that Beecher will go free. Or maybe she's just looking to hold him to that promise of the nicest restaurant in New York and the Dom Perignon. See, Beecher, maybe you should have worked up to that rather than blowing your load straight away. You could have even asked McManus if he knows a good place to take her. Let's face it, he probably does. We cut back to Sister Pete's office where she has come through on arranging a phone call between Beecher at Oz and Keller over at Cedar Junction. Hello? Chris, this is Sister Pete. I'm with Tobias. Hey. Hey! Now listen, uh, Warden Glynn and the fellow who runs Cedar Junction have agreed to this phone call on the condition that I stay in the room here and that someone stay with you there. So uh, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, this won't be as um, intimate as you might like. Thanks, sister. Toby, how are you? <laughs> Better now. You? Hey, me, you know, making new friends, surveying the lay of the land. Chris. I might be getting paroled. No shit. Yeah, maybe as soon as a couple weeks. I thought if I do, I'm gonna make the trip up to Massachusetts. Hey, Toby, uh, don't. You know, if you are lucky enough to get out, I want you to turn your back on all this shit and run. You understand me? You gotta fucking run for your life. <laughs> you giving me an order? No, man, I'm on my knees and I'm begging you, stay away from me. I'm hanging up now. Chris. Another really good little scene this one, and a great way to get Chris Maloney on the show potentially for one last time due to the uncertainty of the show's future. This is a scene that was written prior to word coming down that the show was to return, as this was intended to be the end of the Beecher Keller story. Prior to the fifth series renewal, and with just a couple of episodes remaining, the intention was to bring a finality to the Beecher Keller story and shift the focus back to the story between Beecher and Schillinger which, as I've mentioned throughout the podcast run, has always felt like the centerpiece of the show. While there have been a number of characters that have been on the show since the beginning, it is that story between Beecher and Schillinger that has always been the one constant running throughout the four series of the show so far. Beecher has had a number of other plots in that time, his relationship with Keller being the main one, but he's needed to be involved in something else due to his mortal enemy being housed in a different unit. But even then, those other plots have always come back around to his involvement with Schellinger in the end. 
It's interesting that it was Keller looking to bring the finality to the story by telling Beecher to forget him and to move on with his life should he be released, as for so long it has been Keller looking to prove his love to Beecher in order to continue their relationship. And especially when you consider the words used by Keller when he was departing Oz about how he and Beecher would see each other again, whether that be by returning to Oz or by being together in heaven. Keller telling Beecher to turn his back on all of this and to run for his life, that is only going to add to Beecher's confusion about who he is should he be released. It's an interesting element to introduce so close to what was very nearly the end of the show. Cut to the visiting room, which has been transformed into the nursery where Schillinger is waiting for Carrie and his new grandchild to arrive. He paces around the room when he then takes one of the baby dolls from a pile of toys and goes to cradle it like it's an actual baby. He's interrupted by a CO entering the room, and he quickly puts the baby back on the shelf in a very, what? No, I wasn't doing anything. Don't be silly. The CO leaves shortly afterwards as Schillinger looks at the doll again, noticing that he's put the doll, a white baby, amongst the dolls of black babies, and in a classic moment, moves the white doll away from the black ones. Now, as I say, this is a classic moment of humour for the show. Obviously, racism is absolutely abhorrent. It can never be condoned in any way, shape, or fashion. But in the context of who is doing this here, this is really funny. Not the fact that he's actually separating the dolls, but more that Schillinger's racism runs so deep he has to inflict his ideology on inanimate objects. It's so backwards, it's so stupid, and we're laughing at him, not with him. Like I say, it's wrong on so many levels, but with that context and with who's doing it here, this was genuinely funny. Before he can arrange the toys into some kind of soft toy clan rally, Carrie arrives with her baby, who we found out was a girl when discussing the last episode's deleted scenes, and as indicated by the pink outfit that she's wearing. That's not to say that baby boys can't wear pink, of course. Attitudes have changed a lot in regards to that sort of thing since the show aired. But 20 odd years ago, it was still very much a case of blue for the boys, pink for the girls. Schillinger is desperate to hold his granddaughter, saying that he never got the chance to when she was born, which is pretty much lifted direct from that deleted scene we discussed. And Carrie, as she hands her over, tells her to say hello to Grandpa, and reveals that she has named her Jewel. Schillinger asks about that name's origin, Carrie saying that she is one, and that Hank loved You Were Meant For Me a 1996 hit for the pop singer also called Jewel, which was probably her most successful hit, and something which I am calling bullshit on. The first time we met Hank, he was wearing a denim jacket covered in misfits and Henry Rollins patches. There is no way a kid his age who is quote-unquote alternative would admit to liking something so mainstream. I knew a lot of people like that when I was that age, and I was probably a bit like that myself. No way would he want to be thought of as being in some way conformist or mainstream. Either way, Schillinger is absolutely besotted by Jewel as he holds her, doing that daft voice that people do with newborn kids, as we cut to the cafeteria where he's showing some pictures of Jewel to Robson over lunch. Robson half-heartedly tells him, Yeah, she's real cute. Presumably all he's heard about for the last few days is Schillinger going on about getting to finally meet her as Schillinger tells him about the jewel name, Robson looking as puzzled as Schillinger did a moment ago. Not to be outdone with letting his own backwards ideology get in the way of things, Robson says that he sure as hell hopes that the kids don't nickname her Jew, 
which again is all sorts of wrong, but with who it is that's saying it is kind of funny. As Schillinger takes the pictures back as another inmate approaches asking, hey, aren't you? Yo, you challenging? Schillinger. All right. So this inmate here is Curtis Bennett, played here by rapper Master P in a guest starring role which unlike Method Man's first appearance a couple of episodes ago, was given away in the opening credits. Born April 29th, 1967, Master P, real name Percy Robert Miller Sr, is best known as a rapper and record producer, and also for founding the record store and label No Limit Records in 1991. Releasing his debut album, Get Away Clean, that same year, his breakthrough came in 1995, when his fourth album, 99 Ways to Die, reached number 41 on the US R&B chart. Subsequent albums Ice Cream Man, Ghetto D and MP The Last Dawn brought in more success between 1996 and 1998, selling over 8 million copies combined. In addition to his music career, Master P is a very successful businessman, investing in travel companies, real estate, as well as the sports chain Foot Locker and TV and film production companies. According to a 1998 article in Black Enterprise magazine, it is estimated that Master P's No Limit Enterprises grossed $110 million in revenue, with P himself amassing a $56.5 million personal income, placing him 10th on Forbes magazine's list of America's 40 highest paid entertainers. 1998 didn't just see Master P ply his trade to the music and business worlds, as he turned his focus to professional basketball joining the Fort Wayne Fury of the Continental Basketball Association. According to Fury head coach Keith Smart, who would later coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers and at the time of recording as the head coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks, Master P was quote, coachable and an eager learner, but not NBA material, end quote. Undeterred by this assessment of his on-course skills, in January 1999, Master P joined the training camp for the Charlotte Hornets after being invited to participate by the father of Hornets shooting guard Ricky Davis. After practicing with the squad and having appeared in two exhibition games, Master P was released from the squad on February 1st, 1999, P claiming that despite playing well, he was cut due to his rap lyrics being too offensive, which, you know, whatever helps you sleep at night, mate. 1999 got even more interesting in the summer, as on June 14th, Master P led the No Limit Soldiers in World Championship Wrestling in a feud that also involved the West Texas Rednecks and the Filthy Animals. Brought in as babyfaces, wrestling parlance for good guys, the No Limit Soldiers failed to connect with the mostly Southern audience that WCW tended to cater towards, and the group was disbanded three months later. But that didn't stop Master P making $200,000 for his Soul TV appearance, along with a further $800,000 for media appearances, as well as P's cousin Randy Thornton, known professionally as Swall, earning himself a $400,000 per year contract with the company. Having earned himself a nice payday for doing very little in the world of professional wrestling, P once again tried his hand at basketball, joining the Toronto Raptors training camp roster in the fall of 1999. After appearing in one preseason game, which actually saw him score 8 points, Master P was dropped from the squad prior to the beginning of the NBA season. Having already used his My Lyrics Are Too Offensive excuse, P simply complained that the Raptors hadn't given him a chance. Before the year was out, P signed with the San Diego Rattlers of the International Basketball League. P ended up playing for the team for one season, where his performances were described as disappointing. 
Master P also had a limited number of acting roles to his name at this time. Appearing mostly as himself on TV in guest starring roles, his most notable acting role came in 2000 where he appeared as Johnny B in Gone in 60 Seconds. Towards the end of 2000, P released his ninth album, Get Her Postage, before appearing here on Oz. So Curtis tells Schillinger, or Salinger, or whatever else he wants to call him, that he knew Hank on the outside. A thing that Schillinger, let's say, finds difficult to believe. Robson chimes in, saying that he'd heard that Curtis is a pimp, which I suppose is a kind of businessman, which Curtis confirms and says that his girls are the finest on the strip. Schillinger asks how all of this connects to Hank. As Curtis says that Hank was short on cash, he wanted to rent out his girlfriend. Schillinger isn't buying that until Curtis says that she was called Casey or Carrie or something which shows that he is actually telling the truth. He couldn't have been privy to that kind of info otherwise, and says that she was a cute little blonde. Schellinger has had enough, calling Curtis a liar as he rises from the table, and the rest of the Brotherhood in Union rise from their seats as well. As they do that, there is one guy who, as we look at it, is the closest to the camera. And not to sound too harsh on the guy, but he looks like he's about four foot six. It could just be the angle playing tricks on things, but he looks tiny compared to everyone else in the group. Almost like you could hold him off at arm's length. I still find it odd how Jazz is in this group as well, and we see him here sat next to Robson. Like, Schillinger must have seen his Star of David tattoo at some point, right? Anyway, Curtis tells them all to settle down and that he's not looking for trouble, but he thought that Schillinger knew that Hank was pimping Carrie out, and that even, as Curtis says, a couple of the brothers hit it, and that he's surprised that Jewel didn't come out golden brown. He heads off chuckling away to himself, but that has put a seed of doubt into Schillinger's brain, as we cut to the library where Schillinger is running things by Cloutier. He tells Schillinger that there is a possibility that Curtis is lying. I said that him knowing Carrie's name showed him to be telling the truth, but I suppose there is a chance that he could have found out some other way, as Schillinger asks how he is going to find out the truth. Cloutier asks if he's discussed things with Carrie, which would be the most logical thing to do, but Schillinger isn't due a visit with her again until next week. Luckily, Carrie has been speaking to someone named Sarah over at Cloutier's church, and he says they'll ask her if Carrie has said anything about her past. Presumably, anything said in passing doesn't fall under the same rules as telling a priest something in confession, but in the meantime, Schillinger must remain patient, which is easier said than done. Schillinger admitting that this is going to gnaw on him non-stop, and that he needs to know if Jewel is really his grandchild. Is she really his blood? He goes to leave but runs into Robson, who asks him why he's still talking to Cloutier, Schillinger saying that he needs to find out if Curtis is lying. Robson, as only a neo-Nazi can, asks what happens if that is the case, Schillinger saying that Curtis is a dead man, and that he'll even stick him himself. Great few scenes here from J.K. Simmons as always, giving us one of the all-time funniest moments on the show with the doll, while also showing us Schillinger's vulnerable side whenever he's scrambling for an idea on what to do. We've seen before that he can be horrific when he has the control, but he can be even more dangerous when he's irate and scrambling to figure out what to do next. There is a touch of growth there. Seeking out Cloutier for advice is something which he may not have done on previous occasions, but he still looks as though he's just going to steamroll his way into a plan which he might not have given his full thought to. 
Over in Leo's office, he and McManus are meeting with Saeed, and we get a recap of the whole conspiracy between Robson and Leroy to murder Saeed, only for Leroy to back out of the deal following his conversion to Islam, leading the Robson hiring Carl Jenkins to finish the job, as we see flashbacks to Carl's attempted murder of Saeed and subsequent murder of Leroy from the last episode. Saeed explains that Leroy died saving his life, which Leo says Carl is on trial for murder for, but Saeed wants Robson to be tried too, presumably on some kind of conspiracy charge. The problem with that though, as McManus points out, is that only one person can corroborate Saeed's theory, that being Carl Jenkins, who McManus reckons won't squeal on his fellow Nazis. So Saeed's in a bit of a catch-22 situation here, but he has to be able to speak with Carl, feeling as though he'll be able to turn Carl around. Unsurprisingly, Leo isn't willing to allow that to happen, fearing that it could set off another race war. Feeling slighted, Saeed tells Leo that he'll just do what he always does. Nothing. As we cut back to M-City where Saeed approaches Cloutier for a private conversation. Saeed says that he's been watching Cloutier, believing him to be a man of God who is true to his faith, but also a man who believes in justice, something which Cloutier confirms. With that, Saeed says that he has a favour to ask, as we cut to solitary where Cloutier is heading down to meet with Carl, Saeed having found a way around Leo's refusal. Carl, young and naive as he is, cowers in the corner of his cell under the impression that Cloutier has come to kill him but Cloutier tells him that he is there to help save his soul, as we then hard cut to Leo questioning Robson. Jenkins gave you up. He pinned Leroy Tit's murder on you. What'd you do? Beat a confession out of him? You're going down, Robson. It's his word against mine. You're gonna fry. It's his motherfucking cocksucking word against mine. <laughs> so, it looks like Robson is going down. All that needs to happen now is for Carl to make it to his trial where he'll get some sort of plea deal, surely, right? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves here, as we go back to Solitary where Postman Schillinger is making his rounds. He gets to Carl's cell and passes through an envelope, a little something from his friends in the Brotherhood. The cell hatch is resealed as Carl opens the envelope to find pictures of black men being tortured and lynched, as well as a note calling him, uh, well, look, I know what it says, you know what it says. Let's just leave it at that. Absolutely horrific. That goes without saying. But how annoying is the use of a lowercase i amongst the other capital letters? That's a crime in and of itself. Carl drops the note to the floor and sits with his head in his hands. He knows that he is done for should he ever be released from solitary. Over in the gym, Cloutier is putting in a shift on the bench press when Schillinger and his goons make their way over. Outnumbered 5-1, to one, Cloutier wisely listens to what Schillinger has to say. Schillinger says that Cloutier has been a comfort to him, and for that reason he's gonna let him live, but warns him to never meddle in the affairs of the Brotherhood again. Cloutier attempts to explain himself, but Schillinger recites Ezekiel 2131, not as well known as its often referenced 2517 sibling, but still a powerful message when delivered by someone the calibre of J.K. Simmons. You've been a comfort to me, Reverend, so I'm gonna let you live. But don't you ever meddle in the affairs of the Brotherhood again. All right. And I will pour out mine indignation upon thee. I will blow against thee in the fire of my wrath and deliver thee into the hand of brutish men and skillful to destroy. Over in solitary, Robson has been placed in a cell, 
presumably until a trial commences, and Ryan, who is in the unit handing out the lunches, takes the time to give him some shit and calls him half-dick. A nice callback to when Robson first appeared on the show and had his penis bitten by Beecher. Ryan passes a lunch tray through one of the hatches saying, there you go Alvarez, but we don't see his hands or hear his voice, which I'm taking to mean that this scene was filmed during that time when Kirk was off filming Band of Brothers. Like any show, Oz will have been filmed out of order. Very rarely does a show have the luxury of being able to film one episode and then the next one and so on and so on. But what is interesting about this is what it means as to how quickly this second half of this series will have been written. Throughout series 4B, we've talked about how the series was rushed back into production as the show was either not going to come back and needed to be wrapped up, or was going to return but was losing its filming space. But considering that Miguel has been back for some time now, returning in series 4 episode 10, it's almost as if the writers had to work backwards, getting the end of the series written first allowing for Kurt to finish up his other filming commitments. Ryan then knocks on the cell door of Carl, opening the hatch to pass through his lunch tray. When the tray doesn't disappear as he expects to, Ryan has to investigate, which he does by opening up the upper hatch. He informs Officer Smith that Carl, as he puts it, doesn't look so hot, as we see that Carl has hung himself in his cell having used what I assume are his shoelaces. Ever the sympathetic, Ryan retrieves the tray saying that it looks like Carl won't be having his chicken nuggets, Ryan having presumably scored himself a free meal to close the scene. I'm in two minds about what I think about this storyline. Part of me likes it in that it piles that bit more misery on Saeed as presumably Robson will now not stand trial for his involvement in the plot to kill him, while at the same time it just feels like filler to get us through the series. Rather than having a couple of overarching stories forming the crux of the series, the whole thing just feels like it's been held together with a bunch of short, get-us-through-to-the-next-thing stories. The show essentially just buying itself some time to try and figure out how it's either going to end things should it not return, or to just get itself to the finish line so that it can refocus once we get to series 5. Sometimes that can work, like with the self-contained story in series 2 with Alva Casey's investigation into the riot, or episode 9 in this series with Jack Eldridge and the film crew, which I did like despite some of the obvious flaws in it, while at other times it feels like the show is just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. The use of Carl Jenkins, introducing a new character to carry out a kill rather than it be carried out by someone who is established worked better than when they did the same thing with Gilliam Teron, but he is still very much a disposable character, and as a result his death has very little impact. It's gruesome and memorable with him receiving those photos and the note from the Brotherhood, but he can't have been on screen for more than two minutes total. We haven't built a connection to him. He exists purely to fuel something else and to get us to another point, which we'll cover at another time. Fade up on Unit B where Vahue is enjoying a snooze, having fallen asleep reading some sort of magazine. I think it was a hip-hop mag, I couldn't really make out the title. And he's lying there with a zonking big rat just chilling out on his chest. Understandably, Verhu jolts awake once he realises what this is on him, and the rat makes a quick getaway as Verhu goes to complain to Officer Phelan, first time seeing her since Series 4, Episode 6. Verhu complains that he's sick of sharing a shell with Mickey and the other rats, Phelan pointing out that Mickey is a mouse and basically brushing Verhu off. 
Famous rats that Vehu could have gone with here include Professor Rattigan from Basil the Great Mouse Detective, Rizzo the Rat from The Muppet Show, or for us Brits he could have gone with Roland Rat. Any of those would have been far better than making himself look like a dumbass. Escaping his furry friend, Vehu heads to the basketball court, but his frustration is playing on his mind as he's missing a number of shots. Luckily for Vehu, McManus is on the scene to tell him that his shot is off, saying that Vehu's shot is lacking follow-through. Yep, elite-level, NBA-caliber, professional basketball star Jackson Vehu is being given pointers on improving his shot by prison supervisor, non-pro athlete Tim McManus, who is so arrogant he even demonstrates what he means by follow-through. In all fairness, it is a good shot here by Terry Kinney, but I hope to God there is a cutting room floor full of outtakes of him missing this shot. I've never noticed before that Oz's basketball court has this big wedge of a column coming out of the wall, which means that this court isn't a proper rectangle. Vehu grabs the ball and dunks it with ease, so I suspect that this hoop isn't 10 foot off the ground either, and he tells McManus that that's follow through. Undeterred, McManus continues to give professional basketball player Jackson Vehu advice, saying that his jump shot was erratic even before he came to Oz. Vehu takes exception to that erratic claim, asking if McManus saw the last game he played, and mentions that sodding Bulls game again where Vehu supposedly scored 55 points. This infamous game has been mentioned numerous times on the show, and must have been one hell of a performance that night from Vehu, placing him on a par with the Bulls' own Michael Jordan, who scored 55 points in Game 2 of the first round of the NBA playoffs against the Washington Bullets. Unable to resist sticking the sword in further, McManus says, Yeah, and if I remember right, your team lost that night. Vehu blaming the loss on the lack of a supporting cast, or as McManus calls Vehu selfish. Vehu implies that McManus, as well as other fans, come to the games to achieve some vicarious glory through him. But McManus is all, Hey, I played! Although he does admit that he never had the gifts that Vehu does, but at least his teams won. Vehu saying that the White Boy City League isn't exactly the NBA, and fires off another shot, which he misses. You're not helping things here, Vehu! Mamanis tells him that winning is winning, and that you either know how to win or you don't. It's just inner guy. Vehu mockingly asks if McManus is saying that if they were to play against each other, McManus thinks he can beat him? McManus says, well... Under the right circumstances, if the ball bounces the right way, who knows? So basically, Dr. Tim McManus is predicting a 1 in 14,605 outcome against Jackson Thanos here. Vehu even says he could give McManus a 9-point head start and beat him 10-9 every time. Hell, he'll even do it with the sorriest inmate in the prison as a teammate while McManus takes the best, and he'll still beat McManus broken down pushing 50 junkyard ass. Strong words, albeit understandably confident ones from Vehu, but Mamanus wants him to back it up, and challenges Vehu to a game of two-on-two. Vehu is actually a little dumbstruck that Mamanus is serious about this, Mamanus saying that he's as serious as he is stood there, which I actually thought was a great line from Mamanus. He's being supremely arrogant here. He knows that he's going to get his ass handed to him. But despite that arrogance, he isn't going to give Vehu the satisfaction of having made him back down. Vehu says that McManus will be pissed if he says no, which of course he does, seeing this whole challenge as being beneath him. 
but Mamanus tells him, fuck you. Vihu saying that it's really fuck you, as he hands off the ball to Mamanus and goes to leave. Mamanus shouts to get Vihu back, sweetening the deal by saying that if he agrees to the challenge, then he'll see about bringing him back to MC. He's actually giving Vihu an incentive to not only take him up on the bet, but an incentive to win as well. Vihu doesn't give his answer straight away. He's gonna have to think it over, as McManus takes one more shot at the hoop, and for all of his talk of follow-through and Vihu's shot being off, actually misses the shot. I'd like to think that McManus was meant to score that, but the camera shot is a relatively long one. From Vihu giving him the ball to it cutting away is just under 20 seconds. Perhaps McManus was meant to score this, but he kept missing and we just thought, fuck it, we'll leave that one in. Only the cutting room floor knows for sure. At a staff meeting, McManus runs his idea by Leo, proposing a best of three series between he and a teammate against Vihu and his. Claire isn't sold on the idea, downplaying McManus' assurances that nothing can go wrong as being exactly what he said about the boxing, only for Hamid Khan to wind up dead. Another good example of the show calling back to previous events. McManus, ever the astute, says that basketball isn't boxing, but Leo is more concerned with crowd control, as the gym is nowhere near the size of the all-purpose cafeteria. McManus proposes that they limit the number of attendees, suggesting making good behaviour the price of admission, an idea which Leo actually seems to go for as he draws the meeting to a close. Having persuaded Leo to agree to allow the series to take place, McManus has another favour to ask him. I need a teammate. <laughs> You're looking at the wrong guy. Now come on, Leo, you love basketball. Yeah, I love basketball, but I'm not about to go against Jackson Bayhew. Leo, together, I think we know Tim. Find another sap. This one is staying on the sideline. No surprises there that Leo isn't willing to make an idiot of himself by going up against the much younger, more athletic Vehu. But that line about McManus being a sap was quite cutting, but the part about sitting on the sidelines was more interesting, symbolic perhaps of where his and McManus' relationship has been for the last couple of years. Leo did bring McManus back to Oz after the firing of Martin Quirns, but it was out of necessity more than anything else. We've seen over the course of the show that Leo is prone to allowing McManus to put himself in situations which Leo thinks will fail, possibly leading to the eventual closure of M-City in its current form. I don't think that Leo dislikes McManus personally. They've worked together for a number of years and have been through it all together, but he does seem to want to make things as difficult as possible for the idealistic McManus to perhaps show that the old way, punishment rather than rehabilitation, is to be considered the correct way. Having been rebuffed by Leo, McManus asks his good friend Murphy instead, saying that he needs Murphy to play with him against Vehu. Much like Leo, Murphy isn't willing to put himself out there to be made a laughingstock, even if McManus does consider him his guy, ignoring the fact that we already know that he's his number two choice. Murphy tries to convince McManus to swallow his pride and call the series off, saying that it isn't just McManus out there, it's the entire staff who are going to look bad, and that they're going to take a tremendous amount of shit when McManus loses. Not if he loses, when he loses. McManus is undeterred, saying, who knows, we might win! But realist Murphy says that McManus is going to get his ass kicked. 
but Manus is confident that if he can get the space and the time to get his shot off, then he can score, and that Murphy used to be Allstate in high school. Be that as it may, Murphy says that was 20 years ago, and McManus is only just out of the hospital, and tells McManus once again that he isn't playing. McManus this time throwing a bit of a tantrum as Murphy says that he can be such an arsehole at times. Just like when she compared them to Frick and Frack, Claire taunts McManus about not being able to find anyone to throw the ball to, as we cut to McManus passing the gym as he leaves for the day, but he hears the impact of a bouncing basketball, as well as the sweet swish of the net. Who could this mystery player be? Another NBA star newly arrived at Oz? Mario Sergio draining another three-pointer from downtown? Nope, it's the debuting CEO Dave Brass, played here by Blake Robbins. Born June 17, 1965 in Karamasel, Turkey as part of a Navy family, Blake made his acting debut in 1996, appearing in one episode of All My Children. Much like everyone else on the show, Blake also appeared in Law and Order during the show's 10th season, while in 2000 he appeared in one episode of Third Watch, before appearing here on Oz. So McManus makes his way into the gym praising Dave for looking like a player, saying that he's good. I'm assuming that McManus has met Dave before, as he doesn't ask him his name or anything like that, so they must have met at some point. But he's very quick to assume that Brass is a good player, He's heard him play, but he's not actually seen him play. But Brass is willing to listen to the praise as he sinks another shot. Mamanis inquires about Dave's experience, asking if he played in college. Dave saying that he had two good years in Juco, the same level that Mamanis played at. College sport in the US is a much bigger thing than it is here in the UK. Nobody here gets excited about the local sixth form or university playing sport other than the parents of those involved. But in the US, it seems to be taken much more seriously, with players being recruited for the professional leagues while still in school, as well as coverage airing on TV and drawing huge attendances, with the 2014 NCAA semi-finals setting a record of close to 80,000 for college basketball. That pales in significance to the record set for college football, however, as on September 10th, 2016, the game between the Virginia Tech Hokies and the University of Tennessee Volunteers drew a staggering 156,990 to the Bristol Motor Speedway in Bristol, Tennessee, smashing the previous record by over 41,000 people. Dave continues to sink baskets as he tells McManus about attending the University of Iowa, but he had to drop out after being caught scalping his player comp tickets to the football game as well as any other scheme he could use to make a quick buck. Luckily, he was never charged for what he did, but he was still forced to drop out of college, and admits that in his heart of hearts he knows that he wouldn't have lasted anyway. Mamanis tells him about the upcoming series against Vehu, which Dave says he's heard about, as Mamanis asks if Dave wants to play. Dave calls the opportunity to go head-to-head with Vehu, a bona fide star in the game of basketball, a dream. Mamanis looking pleased that he's found his man, at the third time of asking. Cut to McManus' office, where Boosmalis arrives having been summoned by McManus. You wanted to see me? Boosmalis, come in. Sit. Stand. You play basketball? No. How about when you were younger? No. Any sports at all? Nah. I was a guy with a towel. Go introduce yourself to Jackson Vahue. You're his new teammate. So, game on as Jackson Vahu and Agamemnon Boosmales, aka the inmates, take on Tim McManus and Dave Brass, i.e. the staff, 
in the first of the best of three series in front of a capacity crowd in the Oz Gymnasium. There are some lovely touches here, like having the two teams make separate entrances, Verhue and Boos Malley's in matching green vests and Boos Malley's waving to his adoring crowd, and I loved how they have Fiona and Tony Masters dressed as cheerleaders too. Although it does beg the question of whether or not they've made those outfits just for this occasion, or they had them in their locker the whole time. Leo explains the rules, saying that they will be running full court, whatever that means, due to it being smaller than regulation size, games will run for 20 minutes with one timeout, and that the three-point line is in effect, as the game gets underway with Vehu beating Mamanis easily in the tip-off. Because, of course he did, because he's a fucking professional basketball player, and at least a foot taller. Vehu grabs the ball from Boos Mallers, and that's pretty much how this goes entirely early on. Vehu is essentially playing a handicap match, Boos Mallers being there purely to make up the numbers. As Vehu continues to dominate, McManus calls for a timeout, which seems to be exactly what he and Dave needed, as that little break in play brings them back into the game. Dave landing some nice three-point shots, as well as actually managing to outmaneuver Vehu on the floor. Arrogant McManus can't resist the opportunity to brag to Vehu, pointing to the scoreboard which shows that they've managed to pull the game back to within one point. That proves to be McManus undoing though, as Vehu then shifts into overdrive. He's not going to be beaten by McManus. He might have a begrudging respect for Dave after this match, but McManus is a different story and we see Vehu land a number of dunks as the timer reaches the final minute. McManus, from downtown, hits an absolutely awful shot, nowhere near even going in, as the crowd chants, air ball. Vehu passes to Boos Malas before moving into a better position, raising his hand calling for the pass, but Boos Malas, seizing his opportunity, launches the ball one-handed, Sister Pete looking on in astonishment, and sinks it to a triumphant cheer from the crowd as the time expires. Glorious though that shot may have been, it meant absolutely nothing as even without it, the inmates have won the game by over 20 points. Final score reading the staff 20, the inmates 56. I absolutely loved Vehu basking in the glory of winning. Leaning up against the scoreboard was some top-tier shithousery. But I also really liked Sister Pete telling Dave that he did great. She's so awesome. The crowd chant for Vehu as well as doing the na-na-na-na, hey-hey-goodbye song, something which has never really caught on outside of US sport, to close out Act 2. <laughs> gets underway down on death row where Leo is telling Moses that the court has set the following Thursday as the date for his execution, and asks if Moses has decided how he would like to die. Said has also come down to death row to oversee this little meeting, Moses having gone to seek his counsel as well as inquiring about donating his organs in the previous episode. As Moses says that unlike Giles, who he calls his buddy, which I think was quite sweet although probably untrue, he isn't going for anything flashy. 
and that lethal injection will suit him just fine, and he even calls Leo Sir. Syed informs Moses that he has been in contact with the Organ Donor Association, and that they were thrilled with Moses' generosity, Moses replying that there would be plenty thrilled to see him breathe his last breath. The association were resistant, however, to allow Moses to meet with whoever was to receive his organs, which was hinted at last time, so that shouldn't come as much of a surprise. But after a little gentle persuasion, Saeed looking in Leo's direction, they have agreed to allow it, but only so long as the patient does. Moses says that that's only fair, but it turns out that one patient has already agreed to meet, and he'll do so the following morning when he meets Jiffy Karras, a blind man who will receive Moses' corneas to restore his sight, as we cut to the visiting room where Jiffy enters using his walking stick. Jiffy Karras is played by Christopher G. Robert in what as far as I can find out to be his only screen acting role, and his first of only two acting roles in total, his other of which I'll cover at the end of this episode. Jiffy tells Moses not to get up and introduces himself, although he asks for Moses not to ask why his dad decided to call him Jiffy, and he holds his hand out for Moses to shake, which Moses does, although he does have difficulty doing so, as obviously, being a death row inmate, he is being restrained in handcuffs. Moses also has himself a blue jumpsuit with his number on it, so as I mentioned earlier on, maybe everyone does actually get one when they arrive, but the use of it is only optional for those stationed outside of Unit B where it seems to be mandatory. Moses introduces himself as Jiffy calls Moses his hero, but Moses downplays the compliment, saying that no one has ever called him that before, but Jiffy says that his children's children will sing Moses' praises. Moses asks if Jiffy has been blind his whole life, but apparently Jiffy only lost his sight two years prior, although he doesn't reveal how, but thanks to Moses he'll be able to see his children's faces once again. Jiffy really hammers home the children aspect during this meeting. That is clearly his main motivation here. Moses says that he's glad that his death could bring about some good, as Jiffy asks if he'd mind if he touched him. I beg your pardon, Mr. Karras, you've only just met the man. Of course he doesn't mean touch him like that, he means touch Moses' face to get an idea of what Moses looked like, so that he can remember it for later. Cut to receiving and discharge where Leo, who's once again with Saeed, although he may have been there anyways, that's where he works, is telling Moses about being transferred to Benchley Memorial so that the doctors can do whatever tests they need to do ahead of the execution. Presumably Moses' eyes need to be up to a certain standard and healthy enough to proceed with the transplant whenever that time comes. Saeed tells Moses that he'll also be meeting with Deborah Beck, a 20-year-old science major, who will be receiving Moses' heart when he goes. Moses says that it's crazy how on the brink of his demise he feels more alive than ever. Knowing that at least two people's lives will be improved seems to have brought out the positive side of Moses' outlook, saying that it's like he's got more reason to live. And when Leo tells the officer to take him out, he says, So long, Saeed. Saeed gives a nod of acknowledgement as Moses shoots him a huge grin as he's let out. Something doesn't quite seem on the level here, Something which Saeed doesn't pick up on. Someone who has picked up on it though is Arif, telling Saeed that he said so long like he was never coming back, as the scene closes with Saeed looking puzzled. Cut to M-City where it is a big day on Up Your Ante, where Not That John Carpenter is about to go for the top prize of one million dollars. The question then, for one million dollars, what is the capital of Burkina Faso? The guest on the show I didn't recognise at all. In fact, they don't even mention them by name, so I had to head to the closing credits to find out who this was. 
and this is American journalist and author Peter Mass, who is perhaps best known for his biography of Frank Sapico. He also wrote the New York Times bestseller Underboss, detailing the life of Sammy the Bull Gravano, as well as the Valachi Papers, a seminal work which seemingly spawned an entire genre of books written about the Mafia, and Inner Child Name, which won the 1991 Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime Book. Peter's clue, a guess of Burkina Faso City, isn't exactly helpful, Gordon Elliott even telling Mr. Mass that he needs to provide either a hint or an answer, as we pan across to Chucky asking Beecher for the answer. Not does Beecher know the answer, just what is it? So sure is he that Beecher knows it based on his previous form. For once though, Beecher doesn't have the fuckiest of clues, as Jazz says that he once dated a girl named Burkina Faso, which on the surface seems a bit of a throwaway line, but one which I wouldn't be surprised to be true considering Evan Seinfeld's involvement in the adult entertainment industry. We don't hear how Not That John Carpenter comes to his conclusion, but we do hear him say that the capital of Upper Volta, the name for Burkina Faso prior to 1984, was Uwagagudu, so that must be the answer. Gordon asks if Not That John Carpenter is sure of his answer, a technique Not That John Carpenter should have been familiar with from his time on Who Wants To Be A Millionaire, but he says that he's positive, and that's his final answer. Oh, Not That John, you were so close! But the answer is Uwagadugu, not Uwagagudu. So that one million dollar prize has gone begging, as we interrupt this program, by which I mean close out Act 3, with a special news bulletin which brings sad news to Saeed, and brings tears to Giles' eyes. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. WYAT has just received word that convicted murderer Moses Dial has died in an attempted escape while being temporarily transferred from the Oswald Correctional Facility to Benchley Memorial Hospital. Dial, who had decided to donate his organs immediately after his execution, was being transported in a van when he apparently leapt out of the moving vehicle. We'll have more details on this story as it develops. Morpheus returns to Earth, alone, sad, and what happens? Do the townspeople console him? Fuck no, they blame him for his failure and tear him to bits, literally. Then they throw his organs in the river. All this because he let his family down, because he took one last look at someone he loved. The gods don't have a sentimental bone in their bodies. Act 4 then gets underway with a crime flashback of Porrig Connolly, one of those Irish names pronounced completely different to how it's spelt, played here by Brian F. O'Byrne. Born May 16, 1967 in Mullug, County Cavan, Ireland, Brian attended the Samuel Beckett Centre at Trinity College in Dublin, before moving to New York in 1990, where he was cast in a production of Philadelphia Here I Come staged by the Irish Repertory Theatre. Establishing himself as a talented performer on the independent theatre scene in the early 90s, including credits for a production of The Playboy of the Western World, Brian would make his Broadway debut in 1993 in The Sisters Rosenweig, staged at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre, while the following year he made his screen acting debut, appearing in the short film Avenue X. 
appearing in minor roles in the films Electricity, The Fifth Province and The Last Bus Home in 1997, Brian returned to the Broadway stage in 1998, starring as Pat O'Dooley in The Beauty Queen of Lenin at the Walter Kerr Theatre, a role he had previously played in an off-Broadway production of the show. Also in 1998, Brian would make his television acting debut, appearing in four episodes of a TV adaptation of Amongst Women for BBC Northern Ireland before returning to the Broadway stage in 1999 at the Lyceum Theatre in the Lonesome West. In 2000, Brian starred in the film An Everlasting Peace, directed by Oz executive producer Barry Levinson, before appearing here on Oz itself. So Porig, and you'll have to forgive me with that as there is a chance that my pronunciation may differ from time to time, is working in an Irish pub something which he is doing illegally as he has been arrested for illegal entry into the US, and is being held at Oz pending deportation. Interesting how Porig has been given a prison number here much like everyone else despite the fact that he's only being held until he's deported back to Ireland. We see that it's the FBI who arrest Porig, so I'm assuming that getting Porig into the prison system through a different kind of conviction was how deportations and things of that nature were handled prior to the formation of Homeland Security in 2002. Over in Leo's office, McManus seems surprisingly chipper about Porig being at Oz, Leo saying that he arrived earlier that morning, and asking how McManus knows about him being there. Porig's reputation precedes him, as McManus says that he's read about him in the papers and that Porig is a member of the IRA the Irish Republican Army, which I won't go into here because that's a whole other podcast in and of itself, and how the British government, which would have been a Labour government at this point in time, are wanting to have Porrick extradited back to them so that he can face charges for his involvement in the death of a British soldier. It's not specified who this British soldier was, so I'm going to assume that this isn't a direct reference to any real-world event from the time, although there had been two British soldiers killed under similar circumstances a number of years earlier. So this could be based on that, although due to the topicality of the time frame, it seems unlikely. Porig has in fact been granted asylum by the courts, although this has been appealed by the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which until 2003 was part of the US Department of Justice until it was split off into different entities following the formation of Homeland Security as I theorised a moment ago. This appeal has placed Porig in some kind of legal limbo, hence why he's been sent to Oz in the meantime. But Manus asks why Porig isn't in a federal prison, Leo saying that he was, but apparently he kept getting death threats and was nearly murdered by a Protestant sympathiser, leading to the State Department asking if they could hide him in Oz, which doesn't sound dodgy at all. Sensing an opportunity, McManus asks for Leo to place Porig in M-City, Leo saying that McManus is just looking for an excuse to study Porig's every move. McManus admitting that having what he describes as a genuine terrorist in the unit has left him intrigued. Rather than go back and forth on it, Leo allows the request, saying God help both McManus and Porig as he hands off Porig's file, as we cut to McManus' office where he's meeting with Porig for the first time. McManus introduces himself, and he's all very polite to the new guy, and even offers some kind of traditional Irish greeting. And a big thank you to Jay over at OSW Review for helping me out with this. I sent a clip of this over to him to get some help with the pronunciation as well as its meaning. So Kayad Miller Fulcher, which I'm also hoping I've pronounced correctly, is McManus wishing Porig 100,000 welcomes, or 100,000 hellos as it would be on Jay's show. McManus Irish appears pretty questionable however, as Porig just stands there blank-faced, 
and Jay informs me that there should be a joyous tone when saying this, whereas he describes Terry's delivery here as being robotic. He also mentions about how Terry is really trying to remember how to pronounce this, which may have played into the robotic delivery. But thank you again, Jay, for your help with this scene. I really appreciate it, mate. Switching back to English, McManus offers Porig a seat and tells him that he's been following Porig's situation, and that following a conversation with Porig's lawyer, he has some good news, saying that it doesn't look like Porig will be at odds for too long, and that due to Porig litigating to remain in the US, it's presumed that he doesn't pose any kind of flight risk. With the judge already sympathetic to Porig's cause, at least according to his lawyer and with the support of some human rights groups, it looks as though bail is going to be set. Despite the good news, which he admits it is, Porrick doesn't seem impressed, remaining stone-faced as he asks if he can leave, which leaves McManus stunned. He was clearly expecting a more enthusiastic response here. While the casting of Cyril may be considered problematic when looking through 2023 eyes, I really like that the show cast genuine Irishman Brian F. O'Byrne here as Porrick. You know I rarely let the chance to do an accent go by, so bear with me here, but had they cast a non-Irish person in the role, you run that risk of having that upbeat, lyrical, ah, points of Guinness and lucky charms and father's head and all that shite. Whereas Brian brings that more blunt, to the point, almost harsh Irish with the use of his own voice. As we see him being escorted to his pod, he passes Jaya, who's either still in the cage following what happened at the start of the episode, or everything that we've seen so far has apparently all happened on the same day, or he's in there on some fresh infraction that has occurred off-screen. It could be a case that this was meant to happen at some other point in the episode but got moved, but if not, and considering that we've seen McManus leave for the day and come back and play a basketball game, then Jaya has been in the cage for quite some time. Ryan notices Porrick. Clearly he's heard about Porrick through the media as well, and motions to Cyril about Porrick's presence, as Chucky jokes about another Irish person being just what M-City needs. As they're going to be sharing a pod together, Ryan heads up to introduce himself to Porrick, but despite his demeanour with McManus, Porrick seems a little on edge. Hey, Ryan O'Reilly. Stop back. Huh? In a doorway. No, but I just Stop back. All right. I like that, Pork. You're a soldier. You're cautious. This is good. How do you know my name? Oh, on the TV, past couple of days, nothing but you and the IRA executing that British Landing Commando officer fuck thing. That was on the tally that we executed Captain Hardy? Yeah. That's not what happened. Well, hey, it doesn't matter what happened. That's what the guys in here think happened. And believe me, that's a good one for the both of us. Mr. O'Reilly, I have no need for what you're selling. You know, Porter, you're starting to piss me off. So I'm just going to say this once. You best start treating Oz like a North Ireland, because in here, you walk, talk, sleep, work, eat, shit, and drink with your own kind. You fucking understand me. Because your name's O'Reilly, you're one of my kind. We got the same color green running through our veins, bro. If that were true, it would matter to you. What would matter? There was no execution. You should be looking at me. We're being watched. Watched? I walk out of here, and on body language alone, everyone's going to know what's what between the two of us. I won't be here long enough to need your friendship, so 
Have a good walk. So straight away, Porrig isn't keen on making friends during his stay, which carries over into later on in the gym where Porrig is approached by Timmy and Jim Burns, sporting a snazzy ensemble of a denim shirt underneath his leather waistcoat. An interesting look, to say the least. He also seems to have come into possession of some new Converse shoes, which he most definitely did not have before. Wonder who he's stolen those from. Porrig doesn't seem interested in talking to either man as they invite him to join their Bible study later in the afternoon mentioning that Cloutier will be leading it. Porrig asks who Cloutier is, as Jim tells him that today will be his conversion day. Well, either that, or they beat the Catholic right off of him. Taking a moment to compose himself, Porrig shoves Jim to the ground and then tackles Timmy and starts to rain down punches to Timmy's face. It's actually quite a smooth series of attacks from Porrig. He can clearly handle himself. Jim drags Porrig off of Timmy, but again, Porrig manages to gain the advantage over the much larger Jim, grabbing him in almost a guillotine choke. As Timmy notices McManus approaching, he tells Jim to get off. As Porrig tells him, Ah, come on boys, let's not stop now. As McManus asks who started all of this. Timmy says that they were just boxing, McManus asking them about doing it without any gloves. Clearly McManus has never heard of bare-knuckle boxing. As Porrig, rather than make an enemy in Timmy, says that, yeah, we were just messing around, and that he was demonstrating the techniques of the great John L. Sullivan, the first recognised heavyweight champion of gloved boxing. Not wanting to hear any more on the history of the Boston Strongboy, but Manus tells Timmy and Jim to fuck off, as he turns his attention to Porrig, saying that if he wants him to put him into protective custody, then he can, but Porrig declines the offer, saying that it sounds very confining, and then leaves the gym. I really like this scene in how it quickly gets across that Porrig is extremely tough despite his somewhat small stature. Timmy probably isn't the strongest person to put him against early on, but Jim Burns, despite being a fairly one-dimensional character, is good in the role of being Timmy's henchman, and Porrig handles Jim very easily. The shove you could maybe say that Jim wasn't ready for it and he simply lost his balance, but the second half of the attack was all technique from Porrig and he was able to gain the advantage very easily. Good stuff here. Cut to the visiting room where Porrig is meeting with his lawyer, and in the past Saeed's lawyer, Arnold Zellman, Larry Pine making his first appearance on the show since Series 4, Episode 3. Porrig immediately asks him what's wrong, so this isn't just a social visit from Arnold. Porrig asks if there's a problem with the bail hearing, but Arnold informs him that it has in fact already happened, and that everything appeared to be set but he then hands Porrig a letter from the Justice Department urging the court to deny Porrig's bail, a major setback in Porrig's attempt to remain in the country. Arnold tells him that he can appeal that, but that will likely lead to everything going before the Supreme Court, and that the fact is that Porrig is going to be at odds for much longer than he originally thought, as he crumples the paper to close the scene. Now usually we'd get a whole scene of someone, in this case Porrig, going to Saeed to seek his legal counsel, but it looks like we're going to have to wait to see if that's the case as we cut to the visiting room, as Ryan is meeting with Suzanne. Last episode, Ryan mentioned to Gloria that he'd run Suzanne off and had no way of contacting her, to which Gloria said she would do what she could to help locate her. So either that has happened, or Ryan has got lucky and Suzanne has come for another visit off of her own back. It's not clear exactly which way the wind has blown on this. Ryan is trying to get to the reason as to why Suzanne left his dad. Was it because he beat her, or did he cheat on her? But Suzanne says that it wasn't either, and that she was barely 17 and the world was new, and there were people to see and places to explore, 
So we're probably looking at Suzanne being 17 around the time of Woodstock and the hippie movement, which when you consider that Dean Winsor's himself was born in 1964, probably falls in and around that time frame. Joking that leaving Seamus to explore the world was her cheating on him in a way, Ryan tells her that he hates his dad, and that he'd never blame her for leaving him. But what he doesn't get is whether or not she ever missed him, saying that from the night they made him to the night that she left, Ryan was the only real happiness she ever had, only that she didn't really know that at the time, saying that she was herself a child with a three-month-old, and that it never occurred to her that she'd never see him again, and it was just the way that things had to work out. Ryan appears confused, saying that Suzanne must be thinking of Cyril if she had a three-month-old when she left, saying that Cyril would have been the baby. Suzanne tells him, no, Ryan, you were the baby, which adds to Ryan's confusion, saying that he's a year and a half older than Cyril. Suzanne tells Ryan that she and Seamus didn't have Cyril, which in a very soap opera twist can only mean that... Cyril and Ryan are in fact half-brothers, a revelation that leaves Ryan dumbstruck. This startling revelation isn't helping my theory that Ryan's whole involvement on the show lately has spiralled into being soap opera levels of awfulness. Getting himself a new mum last episode was hilariously out of left field as it was, but now Cyril has been downgraded to his half-brother, which probably means that next episode we're going to have the ghost of Dino Ortolani tell him that it wasn't he who shot Ryan at all! It was, in fact! You know what? Fuck it. I don't even know anymore. It's just one ridiculous thing after another right now. Fuck knows what the next turn in the road is going to be. But you can never accuse it of being boring, I'll give it that much. At night in their pod, Ryan asks Cyril if he remembers when their dad made them spend a summer up in Indiana at Uncle Bill's farm. First time that Uncle Bill has ever been mentioned on the show, who at this rate could well be Ryan's real dad, and he reminisces about he and Cyril walking through the bean fields with some of the neighbour kids. In what was either them playing a game or an exploitation of child labour laws, Uncle Bill had made Ryan the foreman, and the neighbour kids ended up quitting because they thought that Ryan was yelling too much, deciding to go swimming instead, and they wanted Cyril to go with them. Rather than go with those kids, Cyril stayed with Ryan in the fields until they finished working. Sorry, playing. Definitely playing. And that he's always wondered, did Cyril stay because they were brothers, or was it because he thought Ryan would have beaten him up had he decided to leave? Ryan doesn't get his answer, as his tale of summer's past, engrossing as it was, has sent Cyril to sleep. So he's left to ponder what this all means exactly, as we cut to the gym the following day where Ryan and Cyril are working some boxing training as Jaya enters saying that he hasn't had a chance to work out due to all that time in the cage. Which, again, kind of implies that he's been in there since the start of the episode. And as I said, we have gone through at least a few days now, so he has been in there for quite some time. Jaya is one of those gym-goers who feels the need to give you a running commentary of everything they're doing. Or as I'm more of one of those stick-my-headphones-in-get-into-my-own-world kind of guy. Ryan doesn't have time for Jaya's ramblings either, telling Jaya... You want to try shutting the fuck up? As Jaya executes an admittedly very impressive handstand. Cyril is impressed by Jaya's athleticism, saying that he wants to try doing a handstand too, but Ryan doesn't want him to, but Cyril pushes him away. Jaya tells Cyril that he can teach him a lot of things, much more than bullshit boxing. Cyril tells Jaya that he wants to learn, and Jaya tells him, Okay, first off, there's this, and he executes another judo-esque takedown 
grabbing Cyril by his hoodie and rolling through executing a throw. I did get in touch with Michael Gong to find out if this had a particular name or a technical name, but it is just kind of a leverage type throw. It doesn't have a specific technical name. If you ever have any questions for Michael, he's very approachable on Instagram if you head to his handle at Foo Entertainment. I'm sure he'll be willing to answer any questions that you have. Ryan is understandably upset about this and tries to intervene, but gets a pretty awesome roundhouse kick for his troubles. An enraged Cyril regains his feet and storms towards Jaya. And unlike Jaya, who was all about technique, Cyril is all about raw power. And he smacks Jaya with a hard right hand which makes Jaya go completely stiff falling to the ground, smacking the back of his head on the floor. As Ryan tries to calm Cyril down, Cyril's screaming about how Jaya hit Ryan and CEOs run in to break things up, we see blood begin to run onto the gym floor from beneath Jaya's head, the camera panning up to Ryan saying fuck, perhaps under the impression that Jaya is dead. Cut to Gloria arriving at Leo's office to meet with him, Manus and Sister P. Leo asks for an update on Jaya, as Gloria informs them that he's in a coma, and that he's been sent to Benchley Memorial, but she has no idea as to when or if Jaya will ever wake up. But Mana says that this is another knockout for Cyril, but Pete defends Cyril saying that Jaya provoked him, or at least that's how Ryan is framing it. I mean, for once, Ryan is actually sort of telling the truth and in the right here. None of this happens without Jaya being a dick, but as McManus insinuates, Ryan isn't exactly a trustworthy source. It's very much a case of the boy who cried wolf. Ryan has lied so many times in the past, why should they believe what he has to say this time? As Leo asks for McManus to clarify, McManus says they've put off this decision for long enough, and that they should transfer Cyril to the Conley Institute. Gloria disagrees, theorising that doing so would be a tragic mistake. When McManus asks for who, she says that Ryan is Cyril's lifeline to reality and that separating them could cause Cyril to spiral into lunacy. The flip side of that though, as is McManus' argument, is that by keeping him in Oz is only going to lead to Cyril getting into more fights and potentially putting someone else in a coma, and that they need to transfer him out sooner rather than later, going so far as to say that they should do it that day. Gloria accuses McManus of being cruel, McManus responding that he'd rather be cruel than be blind, and I got to wondering, doesn't Oz have its own psychiatric ward where Adebisi went to at the end of series 2? Hell, even before he went, Peter Schiberta did. Why can't they put Cyril in there? Unless they feel that he's just as likely to get into a fight in there due to not being with his brother. Pete suggests a compromise of placing Cyril in protective custody for the time being and to allow Ryan to have regular visits to see if that helps Cyril adjust. Gloria is fine with that, but when asked by Leo, McManus seems reluctant but he does agree to it if it means that Cyril is out of his hair. Back in their pod, Ryan packs a bag for Cyril, who is on the verge of tears saying that he doesn't want to go, but Ryan tells him that he has to, because if he doesn't then he's going to be sent far away from him and they won't get to see each other anymore. Ryan consoles Cyril as they head out of the pod as Cyril wipes away the tears on his sleeve, much like how a child would. They bump fists as Ryan tells Cyril to toughen up and as Cyril leaves, Morales and Chico reach the top of the stairs. Morales tells Ryan that eliminating Jaya means that he owes him, as Morales is in the clear for now as it was Jaya who had his set sight on killing him. Eavesdropping just off to the left of all of this is Arif, who stares Ryan down prompting him to ask if Arif has a problem, sarcastically calling him friend, 
And also kind of ironic, as Dean Winters and Granville Adams were incredibly great friends off-screen. Rather than answer Ryan, Arif heads off to talk with Saeed. See, I knew someone was going to seek his counsel, as he tells Saeed that he has a confession to make. And he proceeds to tell Saeed about how several months ago when he was heading into the gym, he witnessed Ryan killing Patrick Keenan, as we see a flashback of Ryan murdering Keenan with a wit. I was beginning to wonder if this plot point was ever going to be brought back, because as Arif mentions here, in storyline terms we've had a passage of several months since it occurred. More often than not, the show does a good job of having something occur and then have a payoff further down the line, but there has been the odd occasion where something or someone has either just been dropped from the show or just mysteriously disappeared. Keenan's death occurred back in Series 4, Episode 6, A Word to the Wise, so it's not the longest stretch of time that we've had between a callback. In fact, I thought it was further back than that, but we're still looking at a good eight episodes or so since it was last mentioned. Arif admits that because he was wrapped up in his own feelings at the time, the incident occurring following the death of Hamid and during the time of Saeed coming back into the group, he pushed the incident aside. But that every day or every time he's near Ryan, he tells himself, do something. Saeed asking him what exactly. Arif says that he should tell the authorities, and that the attack on Jaya only proves that Ryan will continue hurting people. He is kind of right there, but at the same time, and as I said a second ago, context is key. And Jaya was being a bit of a dick, and he did attack Cyril first, so... I'm sorry, but Jaya kind of brought this on himself. Like I say, if he doesn't attack Cyril, then that doesn't set off the chain of events that led to him being in a coma. It's his own fault, quite frankly. Saeed, who is apparently more forgiving and much more diplomatic than I, says that they'll go to Leo together, reckoning that if Ryan finds out that it was Arif who ratted on him, then he'll likely kill Arif next. Cut to Ryan being questioned about the killing by Leo. Ryan claiming that Keenan was his friend and that whoever has told Leo these bullshit lies must have it out for him. Leo tells him that the informant has no motive to lie, as Ryan switches tactics saying that when Jack Eldridge and the news team were filming in Oz, they asked about the Adebisi videotapes, but that he didn't tell them word one. Sensing that Ryan is looking for him to return the favour, Leo tells him fuck you and that he's going to investigate these charges thoroughly and that if he finds any corroborating evidence, then Ryan is off to death row. The scene closing with Ryan showing that he knows that Leo means that, too. Cut to the hospital where Gloria rushes in to attend to a recently arrived Ryan, Nurse Williams telling her that Ryan just collapsed. As Gloria goes to check on him, Ryan opens his eyes to reveal that it's all a ruse. He did it just so that he could get in there so they could talk, and presumably waste the doctor's time. Hopefully no genuine emergencies coming in the meantime. Gloria tells him that he scared the shit out of her as they go to talk in private. They head to a nearby examination room, as indicated by the numerous posters of the human anatomy on the walls, as Ryan asks if she realises that this is the first time that they've ever been alone, seemingly forgetting all those times they've talked with each other in Gloria's office. She tells Ryan that she needs to get back out there so to get to the point, as Ryan bringing everything down to a personal level by calling her Gloria, tells her that everything is turning to shit. He moves to the other side of the examination table, saying that there's a good chance that Cyril is going to wind up in the mental ward, and that there's now a chance he's going to be convicted of Keenan's murder, Gloria having previously been made aware that it was Ryan who did the deed. Gloria asks how that can be, as Ryan says that someone has gone jabbering to Leo, 
and he asks if it was her. She tells him no as Ryan says that her eyes don't lie. The swooning Gloria tells him to go on, as Ryan says that there's a sizable chance she's going to lose her licence, which likely means that they'll never see each other again. While all of this is going on, the two of them are slowly moving towards each other. There is admittedly a fair amount of passionate tension in this scene, as Ryan tells her he has a proposition, but he doesn't want her to answer right away and to take her time to really think it over. Now just centimetres away from each other's lips and whispering, Ryan asks Gloria to help him and Cyril escape. Gloria moves back away slightly, which I do actually feel sorry for Ryan here, he was so close to finally getting that kiss, but she doesn't dismiss him either, so we're going to have to wait for her answer, as Augustus narrates about how myths are meant to teach us something and asks what the life lesson in Orpheus' sad tale is, as we close the episode. You realize this is the first time you and I have ever been alone? I need to get back out there, Ryan, so tell me what's so important. Everything's turning to shit, Gloria. There's a pretty good chance that Cyril's gonna end up in the loony farm. And now there's a chance I'm gonna be convicted for whacking Keenan. What? How? Someone jabbered on me to the warden. Hey, wasn't you, was it? No. Eyes don't lie. Go on. I also hear there's a sizable chance that you're going to lose your doctor's license, which means I'll never see you again. I know. So I have a proposition to make. Don't answer me right away. I want you to take the time to really think about what I'm asking. Which is? I want you to help Cyril and me escape. Myths are supposed to teach us something. But what's the life lesson in this sad tale of Orpheus? No good deed goes unpunished? Fuck that. Ain't no such thing as a good deed. Love conquers all, never has, never will. Maybe the moral of the story is that those in power are just as fucked up as those who ain't, and the worst thing a body can do is give up his or her own power to some buttheads on Mount Olympus, because if they're so fucking powerful, how'd they let us get away with all this shit in the first place? Answer me that. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 14, Orpheus Descending. After what has, in my eyes at least, been a pretty lacklustre run of episodes, I actually quite enjoyed this episode. I'd even go so far as to say that this is probably the most fun episode we've had in quite a while. A lot of that is down to the return of McManus, and his return to being the supervisor of M-City, but most of it can probably be attributed to the whole segment revolving around his challenge to Vehu for the basketball series. We haven't had anything like that for quite some time, probably since the boxing tournament in Series 3, but its inclusion here went a long way to just breaking up the unrelenting misery that the show usually delivers. That's not to say that we didn't get some of that along the way too, beginning with Bert ostracising Augustus after he disrupted his plan to seize control from Morales and Chucky, and it continued with the murder of Johnny by Clayton, and the ongoing problem that is Cyril's violent outbursts. 
It was briefly touched upon last episode about Johnny going to Leo and asking for Clayton to be transferred to solitary, something which he decided against doing in the end. You've got to think that had he gone through with that conversation, then perhaps Johnny would have still been alive now, seemingly left in Unit J to live out his sentence playing cards with Alvin waiting for the pool table to arrive. The reason for Lance Reddick's departure from the show lies off-screen, which I'll come to in a moment, but in true Oz fashion, he wasn't allowed to leave without a hefty dose of grim. Not only for himself, due to his death, but for Leo to contemplate what he could have done to prevent it, and what's to now be done with Clayton going forward, as he's going to be convicted of Johnny's murder, and possibly face the death penalty as a result. Elsewhere, there were a number of different threads involving Ryan. There wasn't a huge amount of follow-up to the story of Suzanne coming into his life, but what there was has placed him into a confusing situation about where he stands with his now half-brother. Based on the closing scene, it seems as though not much has actually changed between them, and nor should he, you don't just throw away their years of growing up together just like that, and he's looking to escape Oz with Cyril, but even that is largely just to save his own ass following the murder of Patrick Keenan coming to light as he's now roped Gloria into the whole thing as well to try and assist him in his attempt to break free. Despite all of this, I'd probably say this was one of the first times that the show has ever felt guilty of containing something that would be considered filler. While it gave us that great comedy moment of Schillinger with the dolls, the whole segment involving the uncertainty of his granddaughter's bloodline doesn't really go anywhere, nor does the introduction of Porrick Connolly another inmate that has just been thrown into M-City seemingly for no real logical reason. McManus thinking that he can just waltz back in following his stabbing and just bring peace between Morales and Burr with a simple handshake was wonderfully naive, as was his genuine arrogance in believing that he can take on NBA basketball star Jackson Vahieu and win. But if anything, this is exactly what the show has needed for quite some time. Something that we can just sit back and go, you know what, that was actually pretty fun rather than just waiting for the next horrific act to unfold. It was great to get what at the time could have been a final episode out of Chris Maloney, even if it was just his voice on the other end of the phone, but I'm not convinced about where Beecher's story is heading as the series comes to a close. While it was hinted at that he was heading towards a feud with new arrival Edward just one episode ago, that seems to be dead in the water already, not even being mentioned at any point in the whole episode here. Not that that should become the main focus at this point in the show, that will always be his ongoing war with Schillinger, but considering the show was very nearly at the end in some form, it's confusing that it had no follow-up here, with Edward being moved off to be integrated into Burr's story with Morales and Chucky. Get the fuck out of my office. Just the one deleted scene to talk about for this episode, which sees Boost Malas getting himself in shape for the basketball game by doing some power walking laps around M-City. He makes his way around to the card table where Ryan, Rebido, Beecher and Augustus are all playing a game of whatever, as Ryan sarcastically tells him, boy, Boost Malice. Rebido tells him to stop as he's going to hurt himself, but Boost Malice says he's as loose as a goose. Augustus, echoing Rebido's concerns, says that Boost Malice is going to pay for it tomorrow, but Boost Malice says that he needs to stay warmed up because he doesn't want to let them down, which is such a sweet sentiment. He's taking all of this very seriously, whereas everyone else sees him as simply making up the numbers. Rebido even tells him that, saying that no one is expecting him to do anything, but Boost Malice is confident that he'll surely score a few points. Beecher shatters that dream, just flat out telling him, no, you won't. 
as Boots Malley's mentions about playing a little defence, or maybe even getting a rebound, both of which are met with equal chances of happening. Absolute zero. With the pressure off, Boots Malley's asks if all he has to really do is show up. Beecher telling him, show up, put on a pair of shorts. Shorts? Oh no, that's a whole different kettle of fish for Boots Malley's, figuring that if that's the case, he'd better keep on walking, and goes back to doing his laps as the scene closes. We've seen Boos Malley's doing these laps in the background of previous episodes, which may have just been something to give the character something to do, but it's a fun little detail to bring back now that it has a reason to be happening, or at least it would have been had it been included in the episode. It's a fun little scene, this one, just breaking things up that little bit with a bit of a laugh, and you do get the feeling that everyone in it is a second away from breaking out into genuine laughter. Everyone except maybe Dean Winters, who has a face like a smacked ass throughout the whole thing. Rebido has a cheeky grin going on throughout it, and Augustus seems on the verge of laughter too. Does it add anything? Not really. But its inclusion could have made Boos Malley's landing that all-or-nothing shot, having been told you're not going to score anything, all the more sweeter. As I mentioned earlier, that shot ultimately meant nothing due to the points difference. A funny moment in and of itself with how it was revealed. But this could have been a fun bit to include, and at less than a minute wouldn't have impacted that dramatically on the runtime. It's not often that I completely disagree with a choice of deleting a scene, more often than not I understand the reasonings for it, but I think this is a case of this should have been included. It adds more than it takes away, so I think that's a good case to be made. With a death toll of 3 for this episode, the highest since Series 4 Episode 1, it's time to say goodbye to Detective Johnny Basil, formerly known as Desmond Mobey, as we also say goodbye to Carl Jenkins and Moses Dial, played by Lance Reddick, Joshua Harter, and Eric King respectively. Lance Reddick's exit from Oz was facilitated due to other acting commitments, as at this time he was continuing to appear in the recurring role of assistant Emmy Taylor on Law & Order's Special Victims Unit, a role he first appeared in during the show's first season, and a role he would appear in until the end of 2001. It was in 2002, however, that Lance appeared in his most famous role, playing the part of the straight-laced Cedric Daniels on HBO's The Wire, appearing in all five seasons until the show's conclusion in 2008. While considered one of the greatest shows in the history of television, and despite Lance receiving high praise for his work, Lance was never recognised at industry award shows for the role. During the show's run, Lance also appeared in recurring roles on CSI Miami and Lost, while in 2007 Lance achieved his dream of working in music, releasing the album Contemplations and Remembrances. Between 2008 and 2013 he appeared as Philip Broyles in Fox's Fringe for 90 episodes, earning himself two separate Saturn Award nominations. In addition to his TV work, Lance also appeared in the films Jonah Hex in 2010, while in 2013 he appeared in White House Down, appearing as General Caulfield, as well as a brief appearance in the US remake of Old Boy. In 2014, Lance became known to a generation of gamers when he took on the voice role of Commander Zavlar in Destiny, while on film he made his first appearance as Sharon in the first film in the John Wick franchise. Lance was nominated for a third time at the Saturn Awards, this time for his role as Deputy Chief Irvin Irving, which must be a confusing name to say after a few drinks, which he played on Bosch between 2014 and 2021. In 2022, Lance appeared as Albert Wesker in the Netflix series Resident Evil, while in 2023 he appeared as Thordak in the animated series The Legend of Vox Machina. 
Lance Reddick passed away suddenly at his Los Angeles home on March 17, 2023 at the age of 60 due to heart disease. Tributes were paid by his Wire co-stars Wendell Pierce and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., as well as the show's creator David Simon, with tributes also being paid at the US premiere of John Wick Chapter 4 by his co-stars Keanu Reeves and Ian McShane. In a moving tribute, players of the Destiny series continue to travel in-game to meet with Reddick's Commander Zavalar character, where players stand vigil, as well as emote and salute the character. Since Lance's passing, he has earned posthumous credits for the 2023 remake of White Men Can't Jump, while at the time of recording he is to appear in the upcoming releases of Shirley, currently listed as being in post-production with a scheduled 2023 release, while he is set to appear one last time as Sharon in the film Ballerina a spin-off from the John Wick franchise, and the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, both of which are currently listed as being in post-production, with releases scheduled for 2024. Lance is also set to earn a posthumous TV credit appearing as Zeus in Percy Jackson and the Olympians, currently listed as being in post-production, and set to be released on Disney Plus in 2024, as well as playing the lead role in the video game Hellboy, Web of Weird. Following his brief run on Oz, Joshua Harto has continued to act on TV in shows such as Third Watch and The Practice, as well as in recurring roles on That's So Raven and The Guardian. Along with TV roles on shows such as Without a Trace, Jag and Veronica Mars, Joshua landed possibly his most famous role in 2008's The Dark Knight, playing the role of Coleman Reese, the Wayne Enterprises employee who threatens to blackmail Bruce Wayne and reveal him as being Batman. There was a rumour that Joshua was set to return for the third film in Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, 2012's The Dark Knight Rises, allegedly to play the role of the Riddler. However, these appear to just be speculative rumours based on his character being referred to as Mr. Rees, which sounds a bit like mysteries, and don't appear to have been confirmed as being true in any meaningful way. His dreams of bringing Gotham to its knees destroyed, Joshua moved into writing in 2010 to help create the show Memphis Beat. The show ran for two seasons on TNT between 2010 and 2011, and also earned Joshua an executive producer credit. Joshua also earned producer credits in 2013 for The Lifeguard, and 2017's 1% More Humid. At the time of recording, his most recent acting credit came in 2021 for the TV series The Resident, while he is currently working on Striker Force 7 as both a producer and a writer, with the show being in the early stages of pre-production. Following Moses' botched escape attempt, which resulted in his death, Eric King appeared for three episodes as Travis Haywood in The District, while in 2002 he earned credits for appearances on CSI Miami and The Twilight Zone. In 2004, Eric appeared in the film National Treasure, while in 2006 he landed his most famous role as Sergeant James Dokes in Showtime's Dexter, a show which also featured Oz alumni Lauren Velez and David Zayas in leading roles. Appearing for the show's first two seasons before returning in a guest role during season 7, Eric achieved meme status at the conclusion of the show's first season for his delivery of his character's quote-unquote catchphrase, Surprise, motherfucker! In 2010, Eric would also appear in the previously mentioned Memphis Beat on TV, while in 2011 he appeared in the film Born to Race. In 2016, Eric landed recurring roles for the show's Banshees and Mistresses, while in 2019 he appeared as Pastor Greg for six episodes of The Earth. Eric's most recent acting credit came in 2020 for The Good Fight, while at the time of recording he is set to appear as John in the film Crybaby Bridge, currently listed as being in post-production with a 2023 release, and as Dean Cooper in Neighbourhood Watch, currently listed as being in pre-production. 
as he answered the million dollar question incorrectly, this episode also marks the final appearance on the show for Not That John Carpenter. After leaving the show and rather than attempt to pursue any kind of acting career, John returned to his job as an IRS agent, as well as co-authoring the clumsily titled trivia book, Matching Wits with a Million Dollar Mind, the world's hardest trivia quizzes from America's first quiz show Millionaire, which was released in 2002. John would return to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in 2004, participating in Super Millionaire as one of the show's three wise men. Not limiting himself to appearing on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, John also made appearances on 1 vs 100 on NBC, as well as the game show network's Grand Slam. John would return to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire once again in 2009 for the show's 10th anniversary. Collecting their membership cards to the Oz One and Dunkel of this episode are Rosalind Coleman, playing the part of Abby Basil, Master P as Curtis Bennett, Peter Mass, who appeared as himself, and Christopher G. Robert in the role of Jiffy Karras. Since leaving the show, Rosalind Coleman has continued to act, appearing mostly in minor roles on shows such as Kidnapped, New Amsterdam, Nurse Jackie, Blue Bloods and The Blacklist, with her most recent credit coming for the short film The Interrogation. In addition to appearing on screen, Rosalind has also carved out a successful directing career in short films, directing titles such as Driving Fish, Allergic to Nuts, The Journey to Rena's Moan, Bombay to New York, and Cooking Above Log, as well as working as an acting coach. At the time of recording, her most recent directing credits are listed as being for the short films Hang By a Thread and Weapons for Peace, both of which are listed as being in pre-production. Master P has continued with his music career, releasing a further six albums since appearing on the show, his most recent being 2016's Louisiana Hot Sauce. In addition to his music, he has also remained a successful businessman and philanthropist, and in 2005 was presented with the key to the city of Memphis, Tennessee for his charity work with the P. Miller Youth Centers and P. Miller Food Foundation for the Homeless. Continuing to act in either minor roles or as himself, a biographical movie of Master P's life, currently under the working title King of the South, is currently in production with a release penciled in for 2025. Following the airing of this episode, Peter Mass earned a writing credit for the TV movie Submerged, based on his book The Terrible Hours. Peter Mass passed away on August 23rd, 2001, at the age of 72. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, this is the sole screen acting credit for Christopher G. Roberts. However, Christopher appeared on the Broadway stage in Reflections of a Heart in 2010. Finally, we say goodbye to the episode's director, Gloria Muzio. Since directing on the show, Gloria has directed episodes of Law & Order Special Victims Unit, The Wire, CSI Miami, The Black Donnellys and Chicago Fire, as well as directing multiple episodes of Law & Order Criminal Intent, Third Watch, ER, The Closer, a show I should really check out as it has J.K. Simmons in one of the leads, as well as Criminal Minds and Ghost Whisperer. At the time of recording, her most recent directing credit came in 2019 for one episode of the TV series Evil. My episode MVP, this was actually really hard to pick, as despite being a stronger episode overall from the last few, I wouldn't say there was that much in the way of a standout moment from anybody, other than perhaps the comedic moment of Schillinger separating the baby dolls. An honourable mention goes to Arif, if only for bringing the Ryan murdering Patrick Keenan story back around after it was seemingly forgotten about for quite some time, but I'm going to give the award to Boos Malice for providing such a feel-good moment in the basketball game. 
McManus has a method to his madness in lumping Vahu with his Boost Malice shaped albatross for the upcoming basketball games, thinking that he's got one over on the NBA star, even if being paired with the worst inmate player was one of the conditions that Vahu proposed originally. No one is expecting anything from Boost Malice, something which would have been illustrated firsthand had that deleted scene been included, and it's shown very early on that he's there purely because McManus and Brass can't take Vahu on in a literal handicap match. The reveal of the scoreline being a foregone conclusion was a good moment in and of itself, but how good was it seeing Boost Malice sink that all or nothing shot from midway down the court? He scores some points, the crowd goes mental for it, and McManus gets put in his place after displaying an unreal level of arrogance. So for those reasons, Boost Malice wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, CastBox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media or on Instagram when you can get all the updates about the podcast by following the handle at insideozpodcast. You can still follow the show by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast on what used to be known as Twitter, currently known as X, or whatever the hell Elon Musk has decided to call it this week. And you can also now follow the podcast on Threads, the new Twitter-like service from Instagram. Simply search Inside Oz Podcast on there to find the feed. You can also follow the show on Mastodon by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast at mastodon.world. Next time on Inside Oz, the full-time buzzer is approaching as we're in search of a late equaliser in order to Series 4, Episode 15, Even the Score, where despite the stabbing McManus refuses to give up on Omar, the drug trade continues to be a sought-after commodity, Cloutier exiles Timmy from his flock, and as an NBA talent scout attends Game 2 of the basketball series, Morales schemes to end someone's dream of playing in the big league. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone.